Hey, fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredus. As we take on a feast for crows, Valar Reredus seeks to entertain while preparing you for the winds of winter. Hey, preparing me and her as well. Many of the new plot lines and locations launched in this book are not yet resolved, taking us to our greatest heights of mystery yet. For the remainder of the Valari Redis journey, we'll be looking ahead as much, if not more, as we've been looking back. But the core message remains the same. The best books are those that hold up to repeated rereading. George R.R. Martin himself says it, so it must be true. If you're watching live, you can feel free to ask live questions or submit comments. Just hang out with the uh, other chatters. We always have a nice group gathered for each episode. But you can also feel free to send questions and comments ahead of time, posting them on Facebook, Flick, Discord, or Slack. Or you can always just email us questions uh, at westeroshistory at gmail.com. And you can also submit questions through Patreon if you're a patron, which I encourage you to check out. It's patreon.com slash historyofwesteros. And you can provide financial support. And in return, you can get some cool benefits like occasionally get episodes early, shout outs, access to our scripts and notes, things like that. Cool stuff. Also, some shout outs to our regular contributors. Joe Buckley's show, The Isle of Faces, the Scraps and Scrolls edition, is a companion to Valar Reredus. Every week, he is right there with us talking about the same chapters and his takes add a lot more to the picture. Same goes for Nina Friel, except it's on Tumblr instead of podcast form. Her thoughts are throughout this episode and just about every Valar Reredus episode. That's Good Queen Alley with one L on Tumblr. Today, we have, as usual, as will be most of A Feast for Crows, four chapters commensurate with the much longer than average length per chapter in A Feast for Crows. Starting today, we'll have the Kraken's daughter, the one with an ironborn scholar, aka, and now a smart Greyjoy point of view. Cersei three, burning down the tower, <laughs> aka the one with Tommen's wedding. What's up? <laughs> <laughs> the soiled knight, Kingmaker Junior, aka be still my oak heart, and finally Brienne three. The one with Hunt and Huntsman, a.k.a. the gang needs dick. Covered in crabs. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Thanks. What have I done? All right, let's start this whole episode over. (laughs) As Cersei and the Tyrells wrangle for control of the young king, Asha Greyjoy and Aris Oakheart, two characters with one chapter each in this book, find themselves involved in struggles for crowns that will be shown via other POVs the rest of the way. There's a theme of dominant patriarchy being pushed back against here, thanks to Noga Frankel for this observation. It's really perhaps something that can be said about the entire book, but I think he's right that this stretch of four chapters is maybe when it hits its height. Now, Aris is the POV, but it's really more about Ariane in the long term, and the other three chapters are Asha, Brienne, and Cersei. Two of them are repeatedly told they can't do this or that or the other because they're a woman. While in Cersei's case, they don't tell her that to her face. It's just prominently around her. But mm, people don't usually say 
aggressive things to Cersei, like to her face, unless they have men with swords standing behind them. <laughs> In the stretch of chapters as well, we find frequent mention of ghosts. It's sort of a tandem to the ancestry parallel or the ancestry theme, rather, that we've been dealing with quite a bit. Cersei thinks of past hands of the king, while the recent loss of Joffrey and Tywin are understandably still on her mind. She thinks, too, of Rhaegar, and, of course, Maggie the Frog as well. Even Ossifer Plum. Hmm. She hears that Beric Dondarrion and the Hound continue to haunt the Riverlands, though first-time readers think the first is alive and the second is dead, while rereaders know it's the other way around. Hmm. But both kinds, re- first-time readers and rereaders, know a different ghost named Stoneheart is out there now. Brienne thinks of ghosts several times in her chapter distinctly as she passes through areas devastated by war. She thinks of Sir Cleos, she thinks of Renly, Sir Robar Royce, and Sir Eamon Kai, the ones who were slain by Loras when he was mad over Renly's death. She thinks about the Knights of Summer, who we were introduced to that concept through Catelyn's POV, just as... She was meeting Brienne, and many now dead and others are changed forever out of that group of the Knights of Summer. They barely remember who they were in that chapter. She finds herself headed for the Whispers, a place named for voices coming from dismembered heads. That's pretty ghostly. Arianne and Aris call up the names of past Kingsguard, which is extra ghostly because they're all dressed in white. They also mentioned some of the largest wars in Westeros history, good place for generating ghosts and constantly being talked about. And for good measure, the chapter includes talk of Ghost Hill, seat of House Toland. On the Iron Islands, we see mothers as ghosts largely forgotten while haunted themselves by the loss of children and husbands and most everything else. People long forgotten, now returned, are showing up at the Iron Islands as well. And they're all a buzz for an event not seen for eons. And that's where we start. The Kraken's daughter, the one with an ironborn scholar, and now a smart POV from the Greyjoys. Unfortunately, it's the only Asha chapter in the book, though she has three nice long ones in A Dance with Dragons. But it's a fantastic chapter. In keeping with all the new locations, we see a place we've never seen and get some history, of course. Even cooler, not only do we continue to see ancient books, we get repeat mentions of current and historical characters associated with them. The first line is... The hall was loud with drunken harlaws, distant cousins all. Doesn't sound like the start of a chapter that's going to delve into books and ancient mysteries and things like that. But keeping with another recent theme, do these cousins have king's blood too? Harlaws used to be kings on the Iron Islands. So again, we have to keep asking that question. Where does the king's blood end? If Brienne's progress is a great representation of Valar Reredus itself, this chapter is perhaps a great representation of history of Westeros itself. Maybe this quote sums it up best of all. Archmaester Rigny once wrote that history is a wheel for the nature of man is fundamentally unchanging. What has happened before will perforce happen again. He said, I think of that whenever I contemplate the crow's eye. Euron Greyjoy sounds queerly like Euron Grey Iron to these old ears. We have a straightforward statement on one of our core foci. Foci? Foci? How do you say that word? (laughs) The notion that history foreshadows the future. It's Fauci. Fauci, of course. Yeah, of course it's Fauci. 
we have a straightforward statement of one of the one of the core fachi of <laughs> yeah the notion that history foreshadows the future is of course something we talk about pretty often. Hidden in plain sight here is a reference to an author who made this concept even more front and center in fantasy, The Wheel of Time. Archmaester Rigney is a nod to that author whose pen name is Robert Jordan, but he was born James Earl Rigney. In addition, we have history and the supernatural woven together in this chapter with a big chunk of new world building. And in this chapter, we see multiple characters express the value of history and learning from the past, including Asha herself. But let's first take a look at the Harlaw high seat because it's cool. Lord Roderick's high seat was vacant. Two sides of beaten silver crossed above it, so huge that even a giant would have difficulty wielding them. But beneath were only empty cushions. Yeah, that is that is wicked. It's it's in line with a lot of really cool ancient seats we've seen that from people that used to be kings that have since become vassals to bigger kings. And a couple of people commented on the concept of, well, that's sowing all right. That's reaping all right with a scythe instead of, uh, you know, you don't sow with those. But it certainly does get that concept, even though these are the horror laws, not the Greyjoys. Still, the concept of reaping, not sowing isn't, certainly isn't unique to the Greyjoys. And yeah, the Harlows are a big family. The chapter, like we showed with that first quote, has a indication there's a lot of them. And then we get a list of them, each with their own take on the Harlow sigil. There's variations on it. It kind of reminds me of the Lannisters uh, because there's a lot of them. <laughs> and the comparison doesn't end there. The Harlaws are the richest house ruling the most populous island. To be clear, they have nowhere near the power of House Lannister, but compared to the rest of the Iron Islands, they're that role. Uh, relatively, they're that wealthy compared to the rest of the Iron Islands, you could say, or thereabouts. A better comparison overall might be the North, where Winterfell rules, but White Harbor is richer and more populous. So that fits pretty well. Pike is the Winterfell and Harlaw is the White Harbor for this example. White Harbor is known for being a bit out of place in the North. It's near the South. It has Southern culture. It's full of knights. It has Northern culture too. It's kind of on the border there. Harlaw isn't full of knights, but the heir to Ten Towers is one. And Harlaw, the island is the farthest east. So it's the closest to the mainland. So it kind of it fits these parallels pretty well. Joe Buckley points out to note the description of the overall reach of the Harlaws with their number and all their castles and people. It, it's maybe an indication that they're going to maintain some importance later on in the series. Another example could be that Pike is like Highgarden and Harlaw is like House Hightower. Given the current ruler of Harlaw... That fits pretty well because of, you know, the reading and the books and all that, if we compare that to the Citadel. But there's also an anecdote connecting the Harlaws and Hightowers and Corbrays, whom we spoke of in Sansa 1, so not very long ago. During the time of Aegon the Conqueror, the even star of Tarth and his wife raised girl triplets. Each one married into houses Harlaw, Hightower, and Corbray, respectively. The Harlaws have a Valyrian steel blade called Nightfall, wielded by Sir Harris Harlaw, a.k.a. the knight, the heir to Ten Towers that we just mentioned. The sword was originally acquired by the Red Kraken Dalton Greyjoy and somehow acquired by the Harlaws. We don't know how exactly it passed from Greyjoy to Harlaw, but that's where it is now. Sir Harris's mother is of House Serret, which is a house in the Westerlands, not the Isles. So that's another example of Harlaws having a maybe a bit more of a close connection to the mainland. The Red Kraken, who we just mentioned, Dalton Greyjoy, he was Lord of the Isles during the Dance of the Dragons. 
And he famously used almost exactly this strategy suggested, but not actually implemented by Roderick the Reader. With Stannis Baratheon and Tywin Lannister contending for the Iron Throne, we have a rare chance to improve our lot. Let us take one side or the other, help them to victory with our fleets, and claim the lands we need from a grateful king. Asha says it's a good idea, but not much help if she can't take the Seastone chair first. So that's perhaps why this plan doesn't get implemented. But maybe it will be implemented later. Euron is not unlikely to align with someone at some point, even if he gets a dragon and beats up Old Town and wrecks the Red Wine fleet and does all these other things. Even if he does all of that, there's still so much else he has to defeat if he, you know, wants to take all of Westeros, which is what he says he wants to do. There will certainly be people who would rather not fight Euron, would rather conduct some sort of peace agreement. Of course, Euron's very capable of betraying an ally. One might wonder, why would anyone ally with Euron? Well... Let's not forget, most people don't know him. Lords and ladies in Westeros, we readers know way more about him than the vast majority of Westeros, who may not even know his name. They'll know the name Greyjoy, because that's a famous house, but Euron Greyjoy, all the nobles will know of him, but he's not a big name yet. For example, I mean, the claim he's been to Valyria. Despite the doom, it seems that he did go there, though I would guess he sent his slaves while he stayed on his ship. So there's lots of little things that he's probably misled people about. And, well, I expect more of that. Roderick himself is found by Asha amidst trolls she thinks could predate the doom. So that's cool. It's enough to make an obsessed Westorian drool, but there's quite a lot else that tantalizes here in this chapter and this scene even. He casually mentions a book called Questions that suggests the entire timeline for Westerosi history is about twice as long as commonly said, which I'd love to hear more about, but all we get is that, you know, sentence. <laughs> but it's certainly something people debate, the length of the uh, express timeline through different sources. One of the ways you can tell Ironborn culture is self-destructive as well as outwardly destructive <laughs> is how so very many characters seem older than they actually are. It's a really common theme with the Ironborn as they go gray early or they get bent back early or they just seem like broken people. Uh, that condemnation is all the more potent when one realizes that the Ironborn treat their elderly even worse than most of the rest of Westeros. Ghosts aren't just the dead when we're talking about ghosts as a theme. We're talking about living ghosts, like all the people we see in this chapter who have been tossed aside but are not dead. Asha's mom, Elanis, is a clear enough example of this. She's a tragic figure, a woman whose psyche has been ravaged. What makes it worse is that she's not unique. You look at her and think, eh, it's probably pretty typical. She got married, she had kids, and her kids and husband got called into Balon's wars and died. And in her case, she's Balon's wife, so it's even more personal to her. But the loss of kids and husband is, you don't need more. Uh, to add on to that, it doesn't have to be more personal. Those wars have caused ruin and death for the Isles, which were not exactly rich and prosperous before those wars. I mean, Asha flat, flat out thinks, is this my mother or her ghost? Joe Buckley points out we, we could see how this could have easily been what becomes of, or what became of Cersei or Catelyn. In another timeline, a, Cersei, a, a story written a different way, 
very simple. This could happen to them. It could happen to Cersei still, where were she to continue to survive or flee King's Landing and, and lose the crown, but not, not die. Let's say Catelyn didn't die at the Red Wedding and was actually sent to Seaguard, where Rob was had intended for her to be. That was putting her out of harm's way in his mind, but also keeping her out of everything. She would have been out of politics. She would have been out of the loop. And she would have started to, if that state of uh, had state had persisted for long enough, she would have started to be kind of like a ghost herself. In fact, she already was becoming a bit like one. And it wasn't necessarily a permanent state of affairs, but she was on that path. And then, well, now there's no turning back. I mean, Catelyn is a strong woman or was a strong woman. And if she did discover or reunite with at least one of her children, maybe that would have brought her back around. Of course, that's not possible for, say, Alanis Harlaw, because, you know, Theon is alive, but he's, talk about a ghost. I mean, talk about prematurely gray and, and a much different person than he ever was. And Asha doesn't spend much time with her. He's, this is, this is about as much as she gets. Asha's the nice one. And, but Asha still goes to see her and no one has told her about Theon, uh, Elanis, that is. So it's really just, you see how ignored she is and, and abandoned. And this is a sign. I think George is giving us a clue and reminding us uh, beyond the obvious that this is bad, a bad way to treat people, that she still has value, even as a thinker. She thinks that Balon was murdered and she's right. And like Catelyn, people stopped listening to her, but we saw from her chapters that she still had a lot of really good takes. She was sad, she was traumatized, but that didn't make her not smart. That didn't make her not insightful, but no one was listening to her. And this feels like a very, very similar thing. The reader himself lost two tall sons during Balon's first rebellion. So yeah, it's not just about the, the women aren't the only ghosts here, but the reader isn't cast aside and powerless. He's lord of one of the most powerful places in the Iron Island. So even though he has plenty of grief he's carrying around, he has so much else to, well, it doesn't make up for it, but it assuages it, I suppose. So it, help, it helps battle the grief. Alanis, as a Harlaw and wife to Balon, she's not going to lack for basic comforts like food or shelter, but that's it. She's got that low floor and then not much else. She's got despair, no, no hope of better days, really. And even basic comforts are harsher on the Iron Islands. I mean, Asha has to threaten the cook to get hot food for her captives. And this is at a rich castle, right? This is an extremely wealthy place. And she still is like, I need hot food. <laughs> like, really? Shouldn't, you wouldn't think that would be such a rare thing or a hard thing to get there. Ditto Gwyneth Harlaw, who is the elder sister to the reader. She believes herself entitled to 10 Towers because she's older, which is a nice nod to the coming plot in Dorne next chapter, where the law, uh, well, two chapters from now, rather, where the law would agree with Gwyneth. Here in the Isles, it's much closer to the opposite. Roderick the Reader himself, very untypical for the Ironborn, but also very knowledgeable. He knows they'll never choose her, meaning Asha. She's also a symbol of what Asha does not want to be, meaning Asha doesn't want to end up like all these cast aside women. She can't fight the whole of her society and cultural traditions for, for that, that have been in place for thousands of years. So she is trying to cut a different path. She doesn't want to have children and be cast aside. 
though they are dissimilar in so many ways, this aspect of her personality gives her some things in common with Cersei and Arian Martell and Brienne. And an example of why she wants to reform their society. It's quite possibly what her grandfather Kellon saw as well when he tried to reform the Isles, only to have his son sort of undo a lot of those new, barely taken hold reforms. Not that it's the only reason or nearly the only reason, but it's a dramatic and powerful way to show the rot in a society. The richest house on the Isles is what we're portrayed with here. The uh, House Harlaw, 10 Towers. But it's haunted by living ghosts, plagued by lack of sympathy. And it's just, you can see how it could be such a different place so easily. And Asha can see that, but how to get it to be, be this new place, how to reform it, that's the big question. Now, she can't bear to tell her mother what's happened to Theon, uh, even though she believes she deserves to hear it, but it scares her. And that's, that's a little bit wild to me. She doesn't fear death in battle. She, does, she faces the biases of her culture extremely bravely. She's like, I'm going to take all these men on and change this system. But the fate of her mother, that terrifies her, being in that place. So just let that sink in for a minute. What is scarier, Right. I think you can understand why that would be worse to be cast aside and left alone and abandoned rather than at least dying, trying to do the things you, you wanted to do. And it's this, this manifests this fear of this fate that the Iron Islands has for women is, comes up in a lot of different ways. Roderick expresses it kind of sarcastically of the fear, uh, this fear of the woman running his household too, quote. The woman was so old that a septon had once said she must have nursed the crone. That was when the faith was still tolerated on the Isles. Lord Roderick had kept septons at 10 Towers, not for his soul's sake, but for his books. Yeah, septons are good at taking care of books. They are responsible for a lot of the books having been copied over or maintained, etc. Books fall apart over time and then they get remade. That's something that gets talked about up at the at Castle Black. It's a big job of many of the scribes at the Citadel. But yeah, the Asha mentions the knight. We, let's talk about him again for a minute. Sir Harris Harlaw. He, he, we mentioned that his mother's from the Westerlands. And we also have Christopher Botley, who was fostered with Lord Baylor Blacktide, who's got maybe a little bit of Eastern to him as well. That's funny I say Eastern because the Westeros is east of the Iron Islands, but, but more of mainland Westeros culture and, and the faith of the seven. And we know that Kellon's third wife was of the Greenlands too, of House Piper. So Roderick Harlaw at one time kept septons on Harlaw, as we said, but that's unusual, of course, but it's not unusual what he talks about the, the removal of septons. They used to be a lot of septons on the Iron Islands. It was kind of being forced on them they didn't like it. They got their chance to kick the iron out, kick the septons out back during the time of Anis. And they've never really come back all that much. There's a, there's septs here and there, but septons are generally not, uh, not welcome there, mostly by the people. Even when a Lord wants them around, it's the people are not so cool with it. So yeah, but here's a really cool quote that we of course could not, not discuss. Mm -hmm. Archmaester Marwyn's Book of Lost Books. He lifted his gaze from the page to study her. Hotho brought me a copy from Old Town. 
He has a daughter he would have me wed. Lord Roderick tapped the book with a long nail. See here, Marwyn claims to have found three pages of signs and portents, visions written down by the maiden daughter of Anar Targaryen before the doom came to Valyria. Yeah. Does he, not, does he not cut his nails? <laughs> <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> he also doesn't want anyone coming near him with a blade. He <laughs> <laughs> can't cut your nails on a big long scythe. <laughs> Three pages of signs and portents. I really wonder about that. And since Marwyn has them or has claims to have found them, will we get to maybe see them? Because Marwyn's going to try to meet Daenerys? Well... In a world where we've seen rulers accept all kinds of bribes for favors, a lord accepting rare books is a really nice change of pace, one I can't, can't really disagree with. It may, it may be wrong, bribery may be wrong, but you know, when it's, when it's rare books, hmm. <laughs> the fact that he's an ironborn real, ruler receiving this bribe, though, is a downright shock. That never, the first lord you see bribed with a book that I can think of, and it's this guy of all. <laughs> a lot of connections to be made here. Not just Marwyn coming up again after being named in the prologue and by Kyburn. Not only him, but this book he wrote claiming he knows prophecies from House Targaryen. Man, how incredible that might be. His name coming up a lot in a short period of time. He's not going to come up again until the uh, near the end of the book. So, hmm. Just getting more of Danny's the Dreamer's dreams would be amazing. But there's a lot of other ways for this to be excellent. Marwyn's thoughts on it, whatever takes he might have, whatever correlations he might make to other knowledge he has. Hmm. Asha's reunion with Tris Botley is awkward, but there's some misdirection here. He comes off as weak and obsessed, but over time we see he's quite a bit more than that. George is sort of inverting the awkward, you owe me love character boy. <laughs> he's, he's almost the anti-Littlefinger. A boy who fell in love with a noble girl who was above his station and got sent away for getting too close to her or him in, uh, Littlefinger's case. No, I said that right. <laughs> both, both times it was a boy getting sent away because they got too close to a, a noble girl. And he hung on to that love, but it never became cynical like Littlefinger's. He, his love is, eh, I mean, he really does want Asha to love him and she doesn't want things from her besides love in return. He doesn't want power from her. He doesn't want castles. He doesn't want uh, money. He, he wants her love genuinely, which is, even though he's all mixed up about how to get it, uh, he, he's willing to forego his claim to stay with Asha. That's part of the anti-Littlefinger part. Littlefinger would never give up power for a woman. Littlefinger gave up a castle himself just now, I should mention, but it wasn't really his castle. <laughs> it was the gates of the moon, which belonged to the Aaron. So, Yeah. Nina points out the end of this chapter reminds her of Danny and Jorah in Daenerys 1, The Storm of Swords, where Jorah kisses Danny and she tells him that she should not have done that because she is his queen, as well as in Daenerys 4, where Danny reminds Jorah that she honors him but does not desire him. Asha, like Daenerys, is attempting to assert herself as a ruling lady in a very patriarchal setting and neither is afraid to assert her royal dominance over a man insisting on making her love him. Yeah, after this introduction, it's surprising to see that he's one of the few to stand with Asha against Euron. And he correctly predicts, mostly, what Euron's going to do to Aaron and he's going to survive amidst Asha losing almost all her men. He's about to witness the Battle of Ice. So George is, is using this nice guy trope, a dude who thinks he deserves a woman, a particular woman. Triss assumed Asha would wait for him. 
But as he often does, like I said, this trope is, is gets inverted over the long term. He, he fittingly becomes more like Stannis, but in a good way. Instead of thinking he deserves Asha, that he has a claim to her, he takes her rejection kind of earnestly. He doesn't sulk or get angry, which is pretty typical for men who act like the guy who Triss seems to be at first. But what he does instead is, is, okay, then I'm not good enough. Let's see about that. Let's see if I can be worthy. Let's see if I can make more of myself. And maybe then you'll notice me. And no matter what, he's never going to earn her. Let's be clear. Earning, you, can, you don't earn a person. But if he becomes a great man, she might look at him differently and choose to see him differently. That, that's, that's her call, of course. But, you know, he's doing it the right way. So it's a nice quirk for George to throw in, throw in here. Another breaking of expectations. A different version of a royal woman with a claim and a smitten lesser noble exists in the Dorn plot too, right? Ares Oakheart. Of course, this is also done differently because of course, Ariane is, is pretending that she's really into Ares Oakheart when she's really just attracted to him. She doesn't love him. Three different characters now in the early going of this book have had a fat red drop roll down their neck. Varys got it from Jamie from the point of his dagger pricking his neck. Triss gets it here from Asha. And Kevin got it from Cersei, though in Kevin's case, it was wine and not blood. Though also in Kevin's case, he's the only one of those three to die so far. <laughs> so the wine droplet is the deadly one. The two blood droplets, they, they're still alive. I'm not sure if Varys and Christopher Botley are great candidates to, to survive the whole series, but they outlasted Kevin. <laughs> now, all three of these cases, too, involve threats. One effect of George giving us quite a variety of Ironborn POVs is that we get to see the attitude towards Euron from multiple angles before he storms onto the scene. Quote, The crow's eye brought back monsters from the east. Aye, and wizards too. In particular, he brought back the warlocks pursuing Daenerys, and he sure did learn an awful lot from them. It may even be what kicked off his whole plan to come back. A dragon changes the outlook of when you have big plans, doesn't it? Gives you a lot more options if you can actually get the dragon. So this is a big topic by itself. Uh, we're not going to get too deep into it. I recommend our Euron Greyjoy episode as well as our Forsaken episode. So Christopher isn't wrong when he talks about Euron bringing monsters and wizards. The monsters are more of those he made himself. He cuts tongues and, and mistreats and traumatizes and, and controls people that way. Of course, Aaron is going to later notice that Euron has some septons, a R'hllor priest, a, and of course, the men that were chasing Danny, the warlocks of Karth. He's got three and a half of them. It's not clear whether they're all, <laughs> or two and a half of them. One of them's dead. So it's quite a nasty bit of writing there by George. While Triss uses his intuition about Euron, and fairly accurately, the reader uses a different source, one you would expect a man like him to use, history. I've been consulting Herrig's history of the Ironborn. When last the Salt Kings and the Rock Kings met in Kingsmoot, Euron of Orkmont let his axemen loose among them, and Naga's ribs turned red with gore. House Grey Iron ruled unchosen for a thousand years from that dark day until the Andals came. So he didn't quite get it, but he was close. I mean, Euron does not unleash his axemen, obviously, at the king's mood. He unleashes the horn. <laughs> but I do think he's basically got the right idea. He's not going to slaughter the Ironborn to take control of them, but he's going to take control of them and get them killed. 
partly through his own ambitions and partly through he doesn't really care what happens to them and partly because he's probably going to fail. So whoever's following him is not likely to benefit a whole, of a, a whole lot of, uh, from it. I love that Asha wants to read that book. She's like, I need to take a look at that book. Very, very few characters express sentiments like that. I'm not sure any of the characters who, who express sentiments like that are ones who also want to be rulers. It's usually like a dividing point. You have guys who want to rule and, and people who want to learn. <laughs> and there's usually not a lot of both. It, sometimes like Ares the first is an example. But of course, Ares the first didn't really want to rule. He was just king. That's kind of like Roderick the Reader, this guy who reads in between dealing out justice, things like that. He doesn't really want to be a ruler, I don't think. Some additional backstory on that, though. Euron Redhand is the other nickname of this Euron Grey Iron. In, in the world of Ice and Fire, it's his great-grandfather that was Torgon Grey Iron, who we've mentioned before, that anecdote that seems to apply to Theon. That's the same as Torgon the Latecomer, who declared the King's Moot invalid because he had been away when it happened and didn't get a chance to make his claim when he deserved one. And that comes after the descendants, um, or rather Urathon Bad Brother is overthrown. Good Brother, nicknamed Bad Brother. So that could be what happens with Theon, perhaps, or Theon's descendant. We'll see. So with all these books and discussions of history, it's really easy for George to throw in nods to other plot lines like Cersei's here, quote. She stretched her long legs out beneath the table and turned the pages of the nearest book, a Septon's discourse on Magor the Cruel's War against the poor fellows. Okay, so there you go. That's a line that means nothing the first time through, basically. But it's obviously huge when you're aware that Brienne and Jamie and Cersei's chapters are, you're seeing the signs of, of the poor fellows coming back. A first-time reader doesn't realize that's what's, what's happening. But yeah, after Magor, the Targaryens did disarm the faith, but Cersei's going to rearm them later in this book. So that's clearly going to be a big deal. Joe Buckley points out, while we're talking about Asha caring for people, she decides to prove it to us again in a rather difficult way. She shows off how good of a captain she is and how she treats her crew better than most. And her captives, probably not something we would have expected from Ironborn. She acts like it's not kindness. She pretends it's strength. She you know, acts like it's just she, she has value in it. And that's definitely part of it. She cares about the value of those captives. But she also has some decency to her and it shows up in, in things like that. She's yeah, able I mean, to conceal it. I think this chapter is so important in terms of showing Ironborn not as a monolith. Yeah, that's Very a great point. important. And we, we don't see that really in Dorne as much. Yeah, you're right. Not At least not yet. Yeah, because we, we see it through a guy who doesn't understand what he's seeing and then a person who's been there her whole life. So she takes it, you know, it's all very uh, used to it. She's all very used to it. Yeah, good point. Maybe we'll get some other people who are... Uh, get some Dornish takes when uh, Dorn becomes you know, in the Winds of Winter or Dream of Spring. Yeah, we'll see. Now, let's talk about the castle for just a minute, of course. Uh, it's really interesting and speaks to what you're saying here about it not being a monolith. <laughs> That's a very good metaphor, <laughs> given that we're going to mention a castle. The book tower was the fattest of the ten, octagonal in shape and made with great blocks of hewn stone. The stair was built within the thickness of the walls. But the tower itself, or the castle itself, has 10 towers. Each one is different because the guy who had it built kept changing his mind about the design. But, you know, he didn't tear down what he had done so far. He just changed midstream. And that mixing 
is maybe a, a nod to this concept of Shea raised here about showing the Ironborn is quite different than what mainlanders think of them. Even though they're right about a lot of it, there's more to it. And of course, a tower named after books, that's just really cool. We gotta, we gotta love that. <laughs> Actually, one other thought on, the, on that, what you were saying. Sure. Just a culture that travels the world. Yeah, right. You would imagine that they would, in fact, have a little more diversity there. At least they have the ability to be. And yeah. in fact, and they even do value that. Yeah, that's they would have more that, knowledge of it all. Yeah. So that's something, maybe something to to lean on for the future for them. It's like, look, well, we have this. This is a thing that could be good. <laughs> Roderick's point about Asha winning the throne is double pronged, as Joe puts it. Not only will being Balon's child not outweigh her gender in the eyes of the Ironborn, but what does that gain her? Because the Ironborn way of life is is destructive and, and self-defeating, as, as Roderick is clear on. So if she does at all, like her father was trying to rule. Now, of course, we know Asha is not trying to rule that way. She hasn't convinced Roderick that. But it's, it, it's important to have that discussion and that debate to show the course that the Ironborn is on and the fact that there are people who see that destructive pattern and are trying to break it. And her grandfather may have been uh, the last one to try. Kellon, that is. It's interesting that we learn in this chapter something that, that is really easy to miss, that she went back to Winterfell and saw the destruction there, whether personally or sent a scout or what have you. That's really interesting because that was risky. I mean, she had to go back to Winterfell from... She'd left. I don't know if she went all the way back to Deepwood Mott and then came all the way back to Winterfell. I'm not, not sure. But part of it's her sentimentality because we know that with Theon out of the way, she has a much better chance of getting the throne. So there's it, it couldn't have been to go back to just see if he was going to be another candidate at the King's Mood or see if he was going to be in her way. I don't think she went all the way to Winterfell just to see if he was alive to know if he was going to be a factor in the succession. I think there's some care in that, some caring about her brother. Now, we're going to see a little bit of Euron's plans already happening here, redistributing titles and land and giving it to his supporters. That's obviously going to continue to happen. It's going to be a big deal at the Shield Islands and at the Arbor. And it's part of how he breaks other power structures within the islands by bringing second-in-commands and third-in-commands from people who are opposed to him and promoting them and giving them their own titles so that they're no longer supporting people who are against him. And remember, too, that Euron doesn't care about money for money's sake. He is a money can buy him the things he wants, but wealth in itself isn't very useful to him. So even though Asha is much smarter and much more progressive and forward-thinking, she still has some of this sense of folly, this, this ironborn courage to, to take on something that really is a, almost hopeless. She knows she doesn't have enough men to support her claim. She just, it just isn't there. She, it's, she sees the number of ships. Knowing what she's going to say at the King's Moot, you know, if we had heard in advance she was going to try to shame them and show them the wealth of the Stony Shore and show them the turnips and all that, we could probably have guessed that wouldn't work. You wish it would work, but you can kind of guess that it probably wouldn't. <laughs> and you love the little nod to wordplay here. Roderick warns Asha not to sail into this storm, which, yeah, the crow's eye, the storm. Yeah, I am the storm. <laughs> it's interesting, too. Another thing about the Iron Ironborn is that their names aren't that different from the mainland. You got names like Baylor, which is 
very much a name for the seven because of Baylor the Blessed. But you also do like Roderick and I don't know of another Euron, but there's Balons elsewhere. There's Balon Swan, for example. So yeah, there, there's the culturally speaking, I think maybe George is dropping hints that the Ironborn became a people apart, but they could, you know, rejoin the rest of society and be decent-ish again, perhaps. Tree Girl points out the line, all I see are crows squabbling over the corpse of Westeros, which, of course, that's a Feast for Crows line. And it's, it's of course, what Euron himself is going to say very similarly during the King's Moot. But Tree Girl's point is that this reminds us of one of the things we might be finding in the last book, which is King Bran, the rebuilder, which if Westeros is shredded even more than it already is, then that there's going to be a need for that, whether it's actually King Bran who does it or not. There is absolutely going to be a need for massive rebuilding of Westeros. An interesting theory that came out from our discussion groups is the aging of Balon in part because he's spent so much time sitting on the sea stone chair, i.e. not the metaphorical power ages you, stress ages you, which is definitely in play. I'm not saying the supernatural element is the only thing, but I am saying the possibility of the supernatural element exists. In other words, the oily black stone is something's up with that stuff. Check out the Great Empire of the Dawn and Ashai episodes for more on that. But there's some evidence there's, ma- there's magic in it. And if there's a little bit of magic in it that you know causes premature aging or just make you less healthy, it's hard to describe. I don't know what word <laughs> applies here properly, appropriately. I said properly and appropriately at the same time. So anyway, I, I, it's an interesting theory that since there is definitely some magic uh, associated with the Seastone chair, that stone, it could have an effect on, on humans proximity to it, like uranium or, you know, radioactive elements, like something very mildly uh, toxic like that. I love how Sam is, is on the Blackbird, while Asha's ship is the Black Wind. And those are kind of so close together here. Barely mentioned in this chapter, but in there is how Stone Tree, the, the sigil is just a stone tree with no leaves. And it's not a werewood, but it's not not a werewood. It could be a werewood, in other words. There's no face on it, but I wonder about that. Certainly the concept of werewoods getting old and turning to stone is out there. And well, where else, what other trees turn to stone? <laughs> I don't think it's other trees do that. I, I know there's other fossilized trees that can happen in nature, but it's explicit and powerful with werewoods. So, I don't know. Kellan's wife was a stone, was a stone tree, first wife, but None of those kids survive. A question from Catherine Furseth with a super chat. If Asha and the reader story suggested that knowledge of history and intelligence are required to rebuild or reform Westeros in the end. Oh yeah, maybe. That's a great take. Like, is it is it going to be to rebuild Westeros? Will it require historical knowledge and basically knowing how it was done before, not making the mistakes of the past? Uh, learning from the past. That's a really good theme under the radar, under the, yeah, under the radar theme here. I like that. Very good take. I, I say yes. I will say yes to that. Now let's move on. Cersei 3, burning down the tower, aka the one with Tommen's wedding. This chapter is unbelievably jam-packed with plot and detail and between the lines depth. The community has identified quite a few themes over the years, but my favorite is probably how much Cersei behaves like Ares in this one. But not just Ares, before the rebellion, I mean pre-Duskendale. 
during his slow decline. He was a poor and problematic king, but far from his worst, which came near the end. And ditto Cersei, who's just getting started. We really never get a rest in this book, as Joe points out. I think it's intentional in Cersei's chapters. In Cersei 2, person after person, problem after problem, a whole river throwing itself right in Cersei's face the whole time. And it's never going to stop. She's constantly going to be hit with this and that and the other. And that's part of what it's like being a ruler, I think. We don't get a lot of POVs from the actual person sitting the throne or in, in directly in charge of everything. And when we do, it's, sometimes it's short. Like Ned Stark, we only get him for one book. And we didn't really see him commanding armies in that spot. <laughs> anyway, so, or, or you know, we, we did see him sit, sit the throne indirectly and rule his hand, but, and, and when he did, he was constantly besieged with problems. So even when, uh, even with that peek into the window, it was similar. But here's how the chapter starts. Oh, I pray the seven will not let it rain upon the king's wedding, Jocelyn Swift said as she laced up the queen's gown. Interesting that Cersei prays for a storm, which is like two lines later on the morning of Tommen's wedding, which is right after Roger Carla warned Asha about sailing into the storm and mm, facing Euron, of course. Now, Nina doesn't agree that Cersei and Euron will be a thing. I still think they might be. We'll see, obviously. No need to get deep into that right now. But either way, they have a similar headspace, you could say. Both of them are sort of bent on destruction. Both of them are opposing just about everyone. <laughs> They're kind of, they want everyone to follow them. Uh, and I want everyone to just agree and follow along and be kind of yes men. Related to the rain part, the storm part, chapters two, three, and eight all start with the first line, including rain. All, the first line. And in Cersei 7, the first line will be Marjorie exclaiming, a thousand ships which is a reference to Euron's invasion of the Shield Islands. So there's a lot of this sort of storm and rain and, and combo stuff going on. Related to that, maybe, is the reintroduction of Orane Waters. She'll make him Grand Admiral next chapter, and eventually he'll run off with the new warships she's going to order built. It's an open question where his allegiance is going to land, if anywhere. He, maybe he'll just stay pirate, which is what he seems to be right now. But because he's turning pirate, um, you can maybe see him hooking up with Euron. But he could easily join Danny as well. After all, Danny is blood of the dragon, and Orane Waters is blood of House Valarian, which is blood of the dragon as well. The, the sea snake, Oakenfist, uh, like Orane Waters. Actually, Orane Waters and Oakenfist have some things in common. So, well, let's see what Cersei has to say about him. It was not the first time the queen had made note of Waters, a lean young man with gray green eyes and long silver gold hair. The first time she had seen him for half a heartbeat, she had almost thought Rhaegar Targaryen had returned from the ashes. It is his hair, she told herself. He is not half as comely as Rhaegar was. His face is too narrow and he has that cleft in his chin. The Valerians came from old Valerian stock, however, and some had the same silvery hair as the Dragon Kings of old. Yeah, it's a little bit of how she looks at Lancel later. She's like, how did I ever, he's just a poor copy of Jamie. <laughs> it's the same kind of like thinking of, oh, he's a poor copy of Rhaegar. Also in Jamie's first chapter, he thinks on Rhaegar and will have a lot of thoughts on Ares in his next chapter. So these help set up what's happening in his sister's chapters. Of course, we've talked about this a couple of times and we'll continue to point to it. The connection between Cersei and Jamie's chapters is 
luminous throughout these books. This is one of the rare chapters of Cersei's. It's not next to a Jamie chapter, and all but one of Jamie's chapters are next to one of hers. She just has more. So hmm. the connection to Ares that I mentioned going into this, they're not meant to be subtle, although some of them are because there's so many that you probably can't catch them all. But Jamie flat out says, now you sound like Ares at one point. But yeah, they're, like I said, there's a lot of them. <laughs> we'll start off with this one. Ares notably wasn't fond of his son, Rhaegar, marrying a princess of Dorne. He's cited as saying racist things about the Dornish, including his own grandchild. He didn't trust the Dornish, so... There you go. Cersei's really not happy about her son marrying the Tyrells. She's not racist against them because they're the same race as she is, but still she's all believes the worst about them in every way, is expecting them to move in on her. She's not entirely wrong though, right? That's the thing to keep in mind. And Ares probably wasn't entirely wrong that a lot of people were out to get him, but that's because he deserved it, just like Cersei deserves it seemingly. Now, of course, burning down the Tower of the Hand via wildfire, you obviously can't not think of Ares when things are destroyed with wildfire. But the city itself, a part of the city itself, that also reminds us of what Ares wanted to do and what might be coming somewise wrapped up into Daenerys and John Connington and Young Griff's plots, etc. Ares burned, exiled, and otherwise didn't get along with his hands, which that's very much the case with Cersei. Also, the way Cersei describes how the wildfire actually makes her feel. Quote, Cersei felt too alive for sleep. The wildfire was cleansing her, burning away all her rage and fear, filling her with resolve. Hat tip to Brandon Winslow, who drew our attention to a quote, not about Ares, but about Ares' daughter that has very, very similar language. She opened her arms to the fire, embraced it, let it swallow her whole, let it cleanse her and temper her and scour her clean. She could feel her flesh sear and blacken and slough away, could feel her blood boil and turn to steam, and yet there was no pain. She felt strong and new and fierce. Yeah, hmm, burning away but feeling good about it, yeah. Pretty similar, pretty similar, of course, there's no actual burning for uh, Cersei, no dragons re dragons hatched, but burning uh, burning a tower wildfire. Of course, it also reminds us of Summerhall, which of course is a huge tie-in to Ares as well as Daenerys and Rhaegar. Cersei compares the burning of the tower hand to holding and nursing baby Joffrey. In both cases, it, it could be about power and agency for Cersei, among other things. Joffrey was the product of Cersei defying Robert, conceiving him with her beloved twin while he slept with someone else, which denied Robert a true boy and heir of his own. When she burns the Tower of the Hand, Cersei is symbolically divorcing herself from the father who tried to control her and the brother who, so she believes, murdered her son and Tywin and would kill her if given the chance. So she's going to rule essentially without a hand, which she basically indicates here, all power to herself, just as she believes no man had ever made her feel as good as Joffrey did when he nursed, she now believes she can't trust any man, even Uncle Kevin and her twin Jamie. There you go. That also very, very much reminds us of Daenerys because Daenerys' story is, is progressing towards trusting people less and less, especially men who have other ambitions for her. And she's leaning more and more on prophecy which Cersei isn't leaning more and more in prophecy, but it is becoming more and more front and center 
because she can't deny the reality of it and how true the Maggie the Frog prophecy is coming. It's just hard. How, you know, how is she going to not think about that? Ares started executing people by wildfire a few years before the rebellion, and this is when he started forcing himself on his wife, which Jamie's going to think about in his next chapter. The death of somebody to wildfire would turn him on. So keep in mind that he witnessed much of his family die to wildfire, like I said, at Summerhall, and the stress of everything that happened during Summerhall may have been what caused Rayella to go into labor a bit early, and that's when Rhaegar was born. Also keep in mind that Ares and his wife lost a lot of children to stillbirths and deaths in the cradle, and that was not good for his sanity. I wonder if Ares associated the healthy birth of Rhaegar and wildfire together somehow. The one, the most healthy child he ever saw of from his own, you know, Viserys was, came much later and was not robust and he never really didn't see Daenerys. He only saw her, his wife pregnant with her. So the one child who came out like healthy and, and normal-ish, well, must not call Rhaegar normal, but he, <laughs> he didn't have any overt madness or physical uh, issues. So from Mary's point of view, the one time it worked was when it had this, it happened amidst wildfire. So it's not strange from a maybe trauma perspective that Ares, ha- Ares has these weird associations or, or disturbing associations. The stillborn chick is a relation to this because of course of all the stillbirths that, that Ares and Rayella suffered through. Well, that is perhaps a nod to that with the, the egg that Cersei gets in this chapter. But there's more to it than that. It used to be associated with an idea that Cersei was pregnant. Now, I don't think she is. I don't think she's pregnant. I think it's reasonable to guess that she's had, she's been having sex, but it's not actually recent. She hasn't actually had sex recently. And then later she's going to have her walk of shame and it's going to be months after this and she would be showing by then. So if she did have a stillbirth, it's it's not shown. And we have 10 chapters of her. She's got the most POV in this entire book. So I don't think she was pregnant. She's, she's gaining weight. She drinks a lot. She's not taking care of herself, et cetera. That is more likely, I think. And yet she blames it on her poor maidservant uh, for, you know, not tightening it enough or whatever. And then blames one of her other servants for shrinking her dress and things like that. Really, really unfair. (laughs) Now, Ares too slept around. Before uh, he came around, he stopped sleeping around because he became convinced that all those stillbirths his wife was, was bearing were because of his cheating. So what did he do? A walk of penance. Hey, sounds familiar. Now, he wasn't naked, but that's still... Another comparison to Cersei. Now there's this. Similarity in future plans. Quote, After the war, I mean to build a new palace beyond the river. She had dreamed of it the night before, at last. A magnificent white castle surrounded by woods and gardens, long leagues from the stinks and noise of King's Landing. So the river is the Blackwater Rush, which King's Landing is on the north side of. And here's what Ares had in mind. In 265 AC, offended by the stink of King's Landing, he spoke of building a white city entirely of marble on the south bank of the Blackwater Rush. Whoa, that's really close, right? That's completely on the nose. 
And then, well, we haven't gotten this to this part of Cersei's plot, but we're laying all the airy stuff out now. Let's keep going. Here's this another one. In 267 AC, after a dispute with the Iron Bank of Bravos regarding certain monies borrowed by his father, he announced that he would build the largest war fleet in the history of the world to bring the Titan to his knees. Okay, so Cersei is also going to have major issues with the Iron Bank. She's going to refuse to pay debts mostly accrued by not her father, but by Robert. And though not directly related, she was also building herself a nice war fleet that, with money that would have probably been put towards this debt. So the similarities are gigantic here as well. Now, notice as well the dates. The first anecdote about the rebuilding of the city in white is 265, the anecdote about the Iron Bank of Bravos, 267, the Cersei, nice, cleanly born in between those two dates of 266. Cersei dreams in this chapter of running the realm from Casterly Rock, which Jamie considers a bad idea, but ironically, this is one of the few desires father and daughter shared in common. For a good part of 267 AC, after Tywin resumed west to assume the lordship of Casterly Rock following his father's death, According to Yandel, quote, the seven kingdoms were ruled from Lannisport and Castle Rock, where both the king and his hand were in residence. Yeah, Ares went there too. <laughs> so, hmm, yep, ruling from Castle Rock. Another Ares parallel, Cersei forbids any swords inside Tommen's wedding, save those borne by the Kingsguard. Following the defiance of Duskendale, Ares would not allow any blades in his presence except for those carried by the Kingsguard. Returning to the burning of the Tower of the Hand and the theme of ghosts, which is prominent throughout a lot of these chapters here, while simultaneously keeping Ares in mind, we've got another quote. Here it is. Owen Merriweather, John Connington, Carlton Chalstead, John Aaron, Eddard Stark, her brother Tyrion, and her father, Lord Tywin Lannister, her father most of all, all of them are burning now, she told herself, savoring the thought. They are dead and burning, every one, with all their plots and schemes and betrayals. It is my day now. It is my castle and my kingdom. Yeah. Okay, Cersei, yeah. All in hell, I guess. <laughs> Little catch by Joe that I never I never saw that anyone catch this before. It's, it's a small detail, but wow. So during the search... Jamie notes that there's two guys, two guardsmen that are down in the tunnels looking around and they just get lost. And they're like, oh, we can hear them still, but we don't know how, where they are anymore. So I guess they were incinerated <laughs> when the tower was burned down because <laughs> they would have still been in there. They never got out. <laughs> Whoa. Joe points out Ned, Sansa, Arya, I mean, Arya rather, Tyrion are also could have been mentioned. Ned was mentioned and Tyrion was mentioned, but also just from, this is POVs we're talking about. Characters who have been through this, who have lived or spent a lot of time in the Tower of the Hand. It's a pretty big deal that this building is coming down. So many important scenes happen there. She also compares the wildfire to Joffrey, which is strange. It's just beautiful, she thought. It's beautiful as Joffrey when they laid him in my arms. That is bizarre, man. But it is kind of, as Joe points out, it's Joffrey was wild and evil, so <laughs> chaotic. Yeah, wildfire is kind of too, and very, very destructive. You wonder too about that rebuilding of the city thing, backing up to that, you wonder if that's a deep future foreshadowing. We talked about this brand the builder stuff in the uh, Asha chapter just now. And well, if King's Landing is indeed destroyed, well, they will maybe rebuild it, and maybe it will be a city in white on the South Bank. 
they could be dreaming of, of things that really are coming. Maybe Ares was actually having a vision of the future. Maybe Cersei was. Of course, Olena is still amazing with her, t- her gets on Cersei. She is the boy's own mother, after all. Of that, we are all sure. <laughs> she just keeps hammering away at her. And she knows what she's doing. This isn't just like, oh, I'm just going to throw insults here and there because I'm petty. She knows exactly what she's doing. Cersei does not handle insults well. It gets, it throws her off her game. Cersei tilts too easily. When she's angry, she's not at her best. When she's not angry, she's a pretty decent thinker. She's cunning. She's dangerous for sure. But when she's feeling threatened or insulted, she's not, she ceases to be so bright. And I think Olena is very aware of that and just constantly needles her to, to keep her in that state of anger, which causes her to make mistakes. Another thing discovered below the tunnels Besides, you know, besides the poor guardsmen's fates there, uh, they found a chamber full of skulls and yellowed bones and four sacks of tarnished silver coins from the reign of the first King Ares. Or first, sorry, first King Viserys. We'll probably never know who those bones belong to, but tarnished silver coins from the reign of first King Viserys. Wonder what that's all about because King Viserys was not king for very long. He was king for only a little over a year. Don't know what to make of it. I, I don't know where to go with it. But it's so interesting. Anyway, well, I don't want to spend time on something I can't explain. We, we hear about Sandor uh, and Beric Dondarrion and Vargo Hote, all that. Of course, it's not really Sandor. It's his helmet. But what's so interesting is we actually get, quote, from a septry on an island hard by the mouth of the Trident. Salt pans had been raided by a bunch of outlaws. That's the Quiet Isle, y'all. That is actually the Quiet Isle, which means they are informing the crown that Salt Pans was raided and that the Hound did it, which means they're already trying to conceal Sandor Clegane as the gravedigger because they're already like saying, oh, he's over here. They're already lying about where he's at. They clearly know where Sandor's at, yet they are saying he did salt pans. So that's really interesting. I, I admit, I did not catch that before. I did not catch that the Quiet Isle sent a raven, which also I didn't know they could do that. I didn't know they had a raven, uh, ravens there. So we'll be coming back to this because we're going to see salt pans again. We already saw Arya pass through it on her way to Bravos and saw how messed up it was. But we're going to be seeing Brienne go there and Brienne six. So we'll get a chance there. Quote, when a dog goes bad, the fault lies with his master. That's from Kevin talking about what happened to Sandor, which is pretty hypocritical given what Gregor Clegane did (laughs) in the Riverlands and just in general, what Gregor Clegane did. And well, that is Tywin is supposedly his master. There's more of Jamie and Cersei animosity in this one. The I love you too, sweet sister is says said twice. She's just really mean to him about his hand. (laughs) And Joe thinks it's just because he's not giving her what she wants. He's not going against her. He's not stealing Tom and he's not joining the Tyrells or anything. He's just not falling in line. He just doesn't agree with her on some of her plans and how she's wielding power. And he, she's not up for debate. She expects him to do what she wants. So of course we have the return of, or not the return of, but since we brought it up early, but this is when queen you shall be until there comes another younger and more beautiful to cast you down and take all that you hold dear. Cersei is going to think of this one a lot. And of course we know who to be looking for, or at least we have an idea who to be looking for. But that is part of why when people call her 
you know, the old queen. We have, you know, the new queen and the old queen. She, it's, it's brought up multiple times in this chapter. That's part of why it bothers her. First of all, I mean, it's just rude anyway. Like these knights are like, that is not a very courteous thing to say, but it's worse because of the, the prophecy. Notice that Balon Swan is the one guarding the king and Loras is guarding the queen. I do believe that's intentional. Balon Swan is the most trustworthy of them and uh, probably the one Cersei trusts the most. And she definitely doesn't trust Loras. Some of the others are just kind of incompetent. She sort of trusts Jamie, but not as a warrior. Boris Blonde is incompetent. Aris Okart's in Dorn. She'll eventually trust Gregor Clegane or Sir Robert Strong exclusively, but we haven't gotten to that yet. We get more of Tana Merriweather continuing to try to work her, worm her way in to Cersei, Cersei's good graces. And we under, we see that Cersei doesn't trust Tana outright, but this is what gets her to trust her is that she sees her on her side by lying about putting poison in the cup. Tana straight up said she saw Tyrion put poison in the cup, which is clearly she did not see that. Pretty interesting to see what Cersei looks for as signs of loyalty. And really what she's seeing here is a person working, looking out for themselves and using Cersei. This lie about Sinel, poor Sinel given to Kyburn. It's so blatant. She's like, just watch Sinel and she's going to give a note to this girl and blah, blah, blah. It's like, that would have been so easy for them to set up. That note could just be like, go do my laundry. You know, like we don't, Cersei should have gone a little farther with this. Like what's in that note? That's what you need to know. What is this? If, if she's really spying on her, get proof of her spying, get proof of what she's telling her. Don't you want to know what information she's passing on? The, the truth is she's probably not passing anything on. Although maybe she was, maybe Sinel was spying. I mean, people would be trying to bribe Cersei's mates. Like that is a good thing to do. If you're a player of the Game of Thrones and you want to get, find out what Cersei's doing, Bribing her maids is this pretty straightforward thing to do. After all, we've seen that before. It's funny because I, I dragged Cersei for not having history uh, much in her thinking. And here she goes in this chapter bringing up Ossifer Plum. So Cersei won is East Zero. <laughs> the, what she's saying here, we need to unpack what she means by that. Jamie's like, what's the big deal about Tommen and Marjorie sharing a bedroom? They're not, she's, he, he's not going to get her pregnant. She's too young or he's too young for that and blah, blah, blah. And that's why she brings up Ossifer Plum, because it doesn't have to be Tommen getting her pregnant for them to pretend Tommen got her pregnant. If Marjorie's pregnant, they can claim it was Tommen. It doesn't have to be Tommen if, they, if people in the world believe it is. That's what happened with Ossifer Plum. Ossifer Plum almost certainly is not the father of the people who are said to be his descendants because he almost certainly died before he could get her pregnant. So that's what she means. Those kids were passed off as Ossifers, or the first kid was passed off as Ossifers, even though he wasn't, most certainly. So sure, Cersei is worried the Tyrells will do that. And that's why when she gets these, sees these rumors or this idea that Marjorie might be sleeping with somebody else, it brings her right back to this idea. So again, Cersei is worried about legitimate things. Even though she gets the details wrong, she is very aware of all the different tricks of the trade, so to speak. Now, Cersei also wonders why would Tana betray Marjorie, which is, again, her thinking is mixed up here because she stops thinking about that when she realizes the testimony against Tyrion. She's like, okay, well, actually, I don't, I don't need to think this through. She's against Tyrion. <laughs> so another thing that's really important about this chapter being Cersei's point of view and say not Jamie's, 
is it's it's subtle that Cersei puts her arm in Osmond Kettleblack's arm as she's watching fire die down, uh, wildfire burn, because Jamie is still in the back of his head thinking that she's sleeping with him. That's, uh, so she, and of course we talk a lot about how he's wrapped up, but really, really thinking a lot about her in her quote unquote infidelity. Oh, looks like I made a mistake. Matt Reese caught my mistake. I did make a mistake. He says, Aziz was describing Viserys II. Viserys I was the king before the Dance of the Dragons. That's right. That actually makes a lot more sense too, because Viserys I was king for a lot longer rather than this short period of time. And the Dance of the Dragons is when we had this, the incident of blood and cheese. Yeah, we get a bunch of people here talking about that. Yeah. Um, Daniel Stevens said, could that have been cheese in the, in the dungeons? He was never found. Maybe he never made it out. And it was early enough in Aegon's reign for old coins. Noga F also thought it might be related to that. And Desert Stormborn, Charlie One One, um, as well as Nina brought up the idea that it could be part of the treasury that was taken for safekeeping and never came home that was split up. Oh yeah, there was four, yeah. there was the treasury was split up into four parts by mm-hmm. the Lord of Casterly Rock or the, the future Lord of Casterly Rock. I can't remember if he was actually Lord at the time. Thailand, I think it was. And yeah, he he split it into four parts. You're right. That makes that's cool. That's a great idea. I wonder if they if these were large sacks, that would make sense. If they're not very big sacks, then that's probably not enough to represent part of the treasury. But I like it. That's a really good idea because that would that would make a lot of sense. Cool. Uh, A little nod to the five year gap, maybe with this quote. This is wrong. She thought it is too soon. A year, two years. That would have been time enough. (laughs) Similar to Littlefinger saying, uh, you know, he expected to have more time. (laughs) Of course, Cersei's thinking about the marriage being too soon, but it still, it works as a a nod to (laughs) George changing his plans. Cersei, a lot of people noted how Cersei is embarrassed for her son dancing, which is like, it's so, uh, it makes you mad or sad or something. Because, most of the time, most of us would see this kid dancing and we would think, oh, look at that cute kid dancing, you know? <laughs> and, but Cersei's like, oh, this is embarrassing. You know, they're, gonna, they're, they're all going to laugh at him. I mean, he's a king too. And that's what she's worried about. She's not- They're all going to laugh at you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Adam, King Sandler. She has this funny line about Renly being, since he was Robert's brother, he must have been, he must have slept with Marjorie. <laughs> Nope. Actually, being Robert's brother doesn't say much about sexuality. <laughs> Grenly, maybe, for all we know, was just as horny as Robert, but clearly wasn't interested in women. And Stannis, just not very sexual at all. The cloak thing is interesting here. Olena insists on the Baratheon cloak, not the Lannister cloak. Which is, again, it's not just annoying Cersei, as Stephanie the Peerless points out from our Flick channel. It's a nod to the the legitimacy here. The Baratheon line is the kings. That's what they're marrying into. They're not marrying into these Lannisters who aren't actually the ones who hold the crown. It's the Baratheons. But interestingly, as Noga Frankel points out, they didn't insist when it was the marriage to Joffrey. Maybe because they knew they couldn't get that because Tywin was in charge, or this is perhaps part of just the plan to constantly needle Cersei to upset her and throw her off her game. Stefan B. mentions the, the stillborn chick reminds the Targaryen mutations in a lot of their children. Maybe, maybe, or maybe that's a connection as well, because we certainly were trying to link that to Ares. And the last point, which is that several people out there lamented the loss of Tyrion's stuff. She mentions that when, when the tower is burning, that Tyrion's stuff is still in there. 
And sadly, that might include some books. No. A lot of custom nice clothes, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's hard for him to find clothing. Yeah. And in Dance with Dragons, from what they do, they like take young Aegon's clothes and sew them together in like <laughs> half doublets, like half a doublet, half another doublet. And it's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now the Soiled Knight, Kingmaker Jr., or maybe Queenmaker Jr., aka Be Still, My Oak Heart. Despite so many unique aspects to this chapter, it being the first solo non-epilogue or prologue chapter, for example, it also has a lot but To of, be clear, that's because hmm? Asha has one later. Not in this book. Right, yes. Uh, <laughs> and, and yeah, and she's... Otherwise, she would fit as well. You're right, yeah. She, it's not solo. She's not a solo P, uh, chapter person. She's only a solo chapter person in this book. Yeah. Yeah. But despite the differences... This fits in brilliantly with so many recent and long-term themes, love versus duty, conflicting oaths, and of course, the Game of Thrones itself. But also it has some really excellent dialogue. I don't exactly root for manipulative seduction, but Arianne is a master here. She's not fully in control because she's got misconceptions about a lot of what's happening around her, but her dialogue is so perfect. Uh, there's so many good, excellent historical analogies in this one too. I think it's kind of an underrated chapter. And let's... Well, let me tell you why. The first line is this. The night was unseasonably cool, even for autumn. Next book, Bar Barristan will think about how being a Kingsguard is so much different than being, say, a pit fighter because Kingsguard must be on alert at all times, whereas pit fighters only have to be on guard when they're in the pit. He thinks how the job is quite a bit more demanding and expansive than people realize because of that and for other reasons, but even he is unprepared for being so deeply involved in politics. Kingsguard are not supposed to be that deeply involved in politics. Barristan is unhappy with that. Ares Oakhart, similarly unhappy, similarly out of his element, but with far less experience. And Barristan isn't faced with the likes of Ariane Martel either. His frustration with sneaking around, his lack of patience or understanding of the game Sivas, even his dislike of spicy food, all these things are just to show us how out of place and out of his element he is. He's not a bad guy, just extremely out of his element and very much overmatched. He's not only ill-equipped to navigate the dangers facing him, like the confusing streets we see him walking through, which is another metaphor. He's barely aware these dangers are there. He's aware that Dorne doesn't like him, that Oakhearts aren't welcome there. These are very vague, unspecific fears. He's worried about random attacks in the streets, which might be reasonable, but the place he's headed, the path he's on, leads directly to Ario Hota. <laughs> as much as he'd rather face a real foe than these intangible fears, well, maybe that one should be an exception. After all, Ares is made uneasy by the captain. Even with that, he may not realize just how overmatched he is in that fight either. So like I said, I don't think he's a bad guy. I don't find him super likable either, but we also just don't really get a chance to know him. This is a real just thin slice of his life. I do think he is a, undoubtedly a victim in many ways here, which is a rare example of power dynamics and sex where the man is the one being manipulated. It's, it's almost always men using their power to coerce or get sex. That's extremely familiar. It's super common. Real world fiction, etc. Usually the sex itself is kind of an exercise of power, and it's the point. Littlefinger is, is a rare example of someone who doesn't really care about sex. He's, the sex is about getting the power for him. But that's a rare example Cersei is perhaps the most egregious parallel example we have here, given it includes seduction. Uh, her treatment of Lancel is pretty, pretty bad. Uh, it's not about power as much in this case, because she's not trying to get much out of Lancel other than comfort and, 
in that. But there is a legitimate attraction on both sides here. Lancel, uh, Cersei was legitimately found him attractive and Arianne is legitimately attracted to Ares. But in both cases, they act like it's love when it's definitely not. And that's part of what makes it easier though. The, the being able to pretend that they're in love is an easy sell when the lust is real enough. Young people, especially, but all people, but especially young people, find it difficult to distinguish lust from love. And Ares is not only young, but particularly naive, given he's a Kingsguard and they're not allowed to have, you know, relationships. So Arianne's going to feel pretty awful for all this later and realize how badly she abused him. But she's going to feel even worse about it all when she finds out not only was she did she take this too far, but she took it too far for the wrong reasons because she was operating under false pretenses. But from his perspective, this is all utterly irresistible from a societal perspective. The, a princess, the pinnacle of society who, in Westeros, princesses, queens, kings, and all there, they're the best, quote unquote, the best people. They're anointed by the gods. The reason they're high born is because they were chosen, because they're better. So a man who's been taught that chastity is a virtue and a duty is just presented with this overwhelming physical evidence to the contrary. Not only is she incredibly beautiful and professing that she will love him forever, and she's determined to make him believe that, but she says, she says she's going to use this enormous power and influence to shield him from any consequences, which of course, that's one of the first things he's going to be worried about. Like, well, I'm breaking my, my vows. She's like, don't worry about that. I'm a princess. I can make that go away. He's supposed to say nope to all this, but Arianne is just really good at arguing and she's prepared extremely well. She knows what his objections are going to be and she's got a ready answer for all of them. There are echoes of Jamie's complaints to Brienne and, and Catelyn regarding oaths here with showing how if you break one oath, if you, if you, by keeping one oath, you're violating another. For example, every time he brings up one of his oaths, she brings up a different one that he'd be ignoring if he didn't help her. She mentions he took an oath to Joffrey and to Marcella, but he didn't take one to Tommen. It's a conflict very familiar to us by now from an unfamiliar character. He mentions his duty. She's like, what about love? When he says this can't continue, it can't last, she says, without saying it, she says, oh, but you knew that already. You knew before you ever slept with me that this couldn't last. So doesn't that mean you were just in this for the sex then? It's genius. He's guilty for not being a good Kingsguard, but sleeping with a princess and leaving her to her problems? That's blatantly unchivalrous too. So he's really just, he's kind of trapped. There's almost an element of Christopher Botley in this conversation too, what with Ares just being clueless about Arianne's honor. She doesn't need to be protected. He, she, she brings it up like, oh, what about my honor? And he's like, oh yeah, your honor. She doesn't care about that, but she knows he does. <laughs> Christopher Botley thinks that, our, that Asha cares about honor like that too. And she's like, nah, I slept with this Lysine sailor who barely spoke. Like he was hot and that's it. Like that's, honor doesn't come into it. <laughs> you know, it's just, I wanted to get some. That's pretty straightforward. Of all the brilliant things Arian says here from an argument debate perspective, this one is perhaps the most, the coup de grace right here. It's so perfect. Quote. So, your two princesses share a common cause, Sarah, and they share as well a knight who claims to love them both, but will not fight for them. Ooh, that, that cuts deeper than any blade. Well, maybe not deeper than Hota's axe, which will take his head off, but 
you see how truly trapped he is. Like, what is he saying? There's no way out of this. And he believes things that are not true on top of that. Marcel and Arian have the authority to free him from his vows and allow him to marry her. That is true. They're, she's not lying when she says she has that authority to shield him from consequences, but not really. There's no way, like that's, her authority has that power, but socially, no chance. The nobility, there's no way they would allow that. There's no way they would allow a relationship between a king's guard and a princess to be okay. This is as naive and blind as Jamie thinking the realm would accept him and Cersei. Cersei's like, no way would they, this, there's no way that we could get away with that. We cannot, despite us being as powerful as we are, we cannot do that. Exactly the case here. Arianne knows that Ares doesn't know that and she's throwing it, using that, leveraging it big time. Ares mentions being drunk on her and that's fitting because his judgment is heavily impaired as we see here, but he didn't have great judgment to begin with because again, he's only ever really been taught to fight. Uh, unfortunately, that's the life of a lot of Kingsguard is they're good at fighting and they're noble and honorable perhaps. But this is the kind of situation they have no idea how to handle. And this is a bit, this, this being trapped, this feeling of, of there's no way out of this, I think is a big part of why he basically commits suicide by Hota later. This is a man who, I mean, we already explained this. He says he feels profoundly uneasy at the sight of Hota, yet he charges him even when the dude has a squad backing him. So he's like, I'm afraid of that guy, but I'm charging him even when he has men with him. So that just, I think that's because his guilt and, and everything was overwhelming, his desire to, to fight for, uh, to be a good knight and all that. And the inability to understand Sivas is another good metaphor for getting played so badly in this chapter, as Nina points out. Uh, he just doesn't understand the, the politics at all. And... He's not picking up on any of the clues that a lot of readers would, which gives a lot of value to a reread here because if you're in Aries's line of thinking, if you're taking what he gives you, you're missing a lot of subtleties because just like in a lot of Cersei's chapters, there's people telling lies to him constantly. And if you're not aware of those lies, you might believe them too. Now, Syvass in general is going to be bigger. Arianne's going to have a Syvass board in her prison cell. Tyrion's going to play Syvass with young Griff, which maybe ties them all together. After all, Arianne is going to go to try to meet him early in the Winds of Winter as Doran seeks an alliance. They do believe that's their nephew. If no one knew in our intro, outro video that plays, those pieces are in fact from a Syvass uh, board game, which you can 3D print yourself. You could play it. They're, they exist. I forgot all about that. Yeah. So you guys look at the Saivas pieces uh, every Sunday if you watch us. Yeah. So this leads us to a parallel between Cersei and Arianne, though Arianne is mostly mistaken in her belief that her father seeks to set her aside. She was not given the education expected of a ruler, also like Cersei. Cersei learned a lot, as we saw in Cersei 2, indirectly. She heard things that Jaime was taught by Tywin and then witnessed ruling. So she picked up on these things, but it would have been better if the education was more direct. And that seems to be the case with Arianne as well. And it's a, a bigger oversight because Arianne was definitely set to be a ruler, whereas Cersei was not. But in the same vein, they were both maybe expected to be queens subordinate to a king. Maybe that's what Doran was thinking, that, that Arianne wouldn't be ruling so much as being subordinate to a king that she was married off to, meaning Viserys in particular, the restoration of the Targaryens. So that is not great from, from Doran, not educating his daughter properly. 
So a lot of the a lot of ways she wields power is intuitive rather than getting taught. And that's a big deal because these are people who've been ruling, who've been sitting in these lordly seats for eons. And their fathers have taught them how to rule properly. And their fathers passed that on down. So for people to be excluded, for women to be excluded from that knowledge base is bigger than it sounds. I mean, people in authority, people with power, they arguably need education more than anyone else. Not for their sakes, not because they deserve it, but for the sake of the people they wield power over. You want educated rulers. That's a pretty straightforward thing. Their actions impact everyone they have authority over, generally speaking. It's more important for them to be good than educated, but it's, it's pretty darn high on the list. So yeah, Doran did not handle this very well. He handled the Ariane Quentin situation poorly. He, he should have seen Ariane's mistrust coming because he, he laid it all out. The breadcrumbs were there for her to find that she was being, that something was going on. And it's not unreasonable for her to think that she's being set aside given the way Westeros operates and the way and the evidence she saw from what Quentin was doing. Uh, as far as the letter, she gets these details wrong, right? She sees, it's not stupid of her by any means to think that this golden company breaking its contract relates to her situation. It, it, does, but not in the way she thinks it does. It's, they're not coming for her. They're not coming to overthrow her. But there is a Blackfire pretender that she doesn't even know is a Blackfire pretender. She brings up the Ironwoods, and that's part of what her fear is. She's like, the Blackfires rode with, or the Ironwoods rode with the Blackfires, and the Golden Company is the Blackfires, basically. So she sees this connection between, the Quint, between Quentin Martell, her brother, raised with the Ironwoods, sees the Ironwoods connection to the Golden Company, sees the Golden Company break its contract. That's reasonable. Those, those are dots that do add up. They, they don't actually, but they seem to add up to the conclusion that she came to. Again, not unreasonable, just happens to be wrong. But not only is the Blackfire Rebellions mentioned, but so is Kristen Cole. So are the Dance, so is the Dra Dance of the Dragons. So is, you know, uh, Rhaenyra. And of course, Kristen Cole, Rhaenyra is a huge parallel here. Rhaenyra may have tried to uh, seduce Kristen Cole or Kristen Cole may, tr may have tried to reduce, uh, seduce Rhaenyra. We're not sure which. doesn't really matter which happened. The, the point is it was a relationship thing. To be fair, he did try to reduce her. He also tried to reduce her, yes. <laughs> he tried to, may have seduced, definitely reduced. <laughs> and uh, so there's a clear parallels there with a, a queen and a, and a king's guard. And the whole process of the Game of Thrones and, and who is going to get crowned. So that's, that's very straightforward as a, both on tight parallels and as a vague notion. Now, she did get some things wrong, though, about history. She understands some things incorrectly. She mentions Aemon and Nerys sleeping with each other and assumes that, was, that really happened, which it almost certainly didn't. It might have. I really don't think it did. Um, but it's also a parallel to Jamie and Cersei, who definitely did. So I think readers are meant to be a little confused by this. Only people who pay really close attention to the history know that Aemon and Nerys probably never did sleep together. But from a casual reader, this is presented as similar to Jamie and Cersei, and they have no idea of knowing without digging deep. So it comes off as falling into the same story of setting aside someone who doesn't deserve the crown because of a, a side relationship 
they could easily pin that on what's happening with the Lannisters. They look, Tommen's not really a Baratheon. He doesn't belong on the throne, just like Daron the Good didn't belong on the throne, according to Blackfire loyalists who believed he was the son of Aemon and Nerys, not the son of Aegon and Nerys. It's really deep. The way the history themes of rebellion weave their way through this chapter, I find really excellent. We also get the mention of House Toland, which has a sigil of a dragon eating its tail. Arianne's going to be at Ghost Hill, and we have episodes covering her T-Wow chapters, so you can check that out as well. And while she's there at Ghost Hill, she learns the Golden Company has landed and taken parts of the Stormlands. Little nod to turning a cloak here when Arianne suggests that Arius wear his ripped tunic backwards. (laughs) Ah, yes, yes. We also hear lots of stories about Kingsguard breaking their vows with women besides Ari. She's like, it's normal. <laughs> What's funny about that is Ari's thinks about ones he's heard of and then gets told of others he didn't know about. But at no point does he think of Jamie and Cersei, which may be because doesn't believe those rumors or is he just loyal to his Lord Commander? I'm not sure. Here's another quote that is a really good discussion of uh, Arian's or really good example of Arian's debate skills, as well as a point we've made before and relating to Jamie, I will not be remembered as Sir Ari's the unworthy. He declared. I will not soil my cloak. It is not our love that has dishonored you. It is the monsters you have served and the brutes you've called your brothers. Where's the lie? I mean, he did take an oath, but she's not wrong. He, do, he has served monsters. He has had brutes as his brothers. That is true. This is much more interesting and much closer to the discussion we had at the top about Ares with with Sansa and having to obey because, I mean, not at the top, a while ago, about beating, because Ares thinks about how he didn't want to beat Sansa, but he did it. He thinks how it shamed him and hitting that poor girl, but he didn't didn't do anything about it. Both Ares Oakheart and Arya Hota think of... uh, the term little princess, his little princess, but for different people. For Arius, it's for Marcella, and for Ario, it's Ariane. And well, they have things in common. Uh, no one ever tried to seduce Ario Hota, and we don't know how he would have gone if they did. But it's interesting that we have these guardsmen chapters to kick us off in Dorne before we get into Ariane herself. One thing that a couple of people mentioned, and I got I'll bring up as well, is I think what George was going for with him, the over-the-top descriptions of Arianne's sexuality and her body is that he's just so overwhelmed because he's had so little sexual experience that it just goggles him. But it kind of comes off a little over the top and maybe seems to other eyes the Dornish when we've just gotten the opposite treatment from the Ironborn. The Ironborn have been thought of as a monolith and we just see how untrue that is. That's one side effect of, of having this point of view from Ares Okart's point of view is that it doesn't undermine those thoughts about the Dornish. He just goes right into that. On the other hand, there's still a lot of value to having this chapter from his point of view. We want to see what it's like from an outsider having and seeing Ariane manipulate him within her own point of view wouldn't have been as interesting because we, we would have been in on it rather than being fooled with her or by her. It's certainly a thing in the fandom. People discuss whether this chapter would have been better from Ariane's point of view. I don't think it would have been. I like that it's from Arius's point of view, but I, do, I, don't, I don't have a super strong opinion on that because 
I don't know what the chapter would have looked like. <laughs> For all I know, the Arian version would have been better. To be fair, a lot of people don't necessarily think it needs to be from Ariane's point of view, but just that the handling of it within Ari's point of view could have been different. You're right. I kind of mashed two different topics together. Those are two separate discussion points. Yeah, those are two separate things. Yeah, uh, because the Ariane, whether it should be Ariane or Ari's, isn't only about that point. It's just that's one little part of it. There's lots of reasons one way or the other. Yeah, good point. Good clarification. Desert Storm born Charlie One One says, was Ari Tyrion's only slash best choice to accompany Marcella? Seems like an odd choice given the Reach slash Dornish Rift. And I, real quick, I just wanted to say, um, just because uh, this relates to what we were just talking about mm. um, with George choosing Ari's as a POV and the outsider perspective there, that Ari's is as a Reachman so, uh, so unfamiliar with so much of it. Yeah. So much of this, so much of Dorne and all of that. And it um, being hostile to him, yeah. Yeah. I think that was, in fact, to answer Desert Stormborn, Charlie Wenwen's question, I think that was, may have been the best choice. And in fact, I think the, the Reach Dornish Rift was on purpose because uh, he's not going to, he's less likely to, well, this is what happened, but he, this is less likely to have happened if people could, you know, make an ally of him. He didn't really think of seduction as, as a possible problem that could happen here. What he thought about was power and alliances and him being like bribed or something like that. He didn't think of this type of bribery, I guess. He couldn't send Loras Tyrell because he wasn't a Kingsguard yet. Uh, Boris Blunt's just a coward. So we get another reference, the same as in the, our, uh, the Asha chapter. Arianne mentions the Tolan sigil is a dragon eating its own tail and that the dragon represents time. The Azor High slash Prince that was promised type figure in the Wheel of Time that we referenced back in that chapter with the Archmaester Rigney reference is called the Dragon or the Dragon Reborn. So it's meant to be a Wheel of Time, that dragon eating its tail. And House, there's another reference in Dorne. House Jordane of the Tor is yet another reference to Robert Jordan. Tor being his publisher, <laughs> Tor Books, <laughs> and their sigil is a quill. And Fish 23 says, New Jersey connection, Bittersteel rocks the Jersey devil as his sigil. I never thought of that. I looked it up. I didn't know what the Jersey devil looked like. And I was like, oh, so it is. What does the Jersey devil look like? Um, basically, it's like, a. it, it calls it um, a biped. It looks like a horse with wings, really? essentially, but... <laughs> I've heard of the Jersey Devil. I saw that X Files episode on the Jersey Devil. It's described as a flying biped with hooves. Wow! And so you know, it's not exactly a horse because it only has two back legs and then the wings. It's like a dragon, but a horse. That's so cool! I yeah. had no idea. That's a totally, that's totally a slam dunk. Yeah, I mean, yeah. George is from New Jersey. It's totally right. NQ Fish twenty three, great catch. I think you nailed it. Yeah, I'd heard of the Jersey Devil, but never saw any depictions of it. I only saw the depiction on X Files, which was they're like really a gross hairy looking, person. really scary. I don't like it. <laughs> Jersey Devil, like I just don't like these. It's these all these uh, drawings of them. It's a strange drawings. thing, too. Like yeah. you don't expect to have monsters in like r- urban areas. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> the New Jersey gargoyles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and with that, we move on. Brienne three, the one with Hunt and Huntsman, aka the gang needs Dick. A big piece of Brienne's animosity towards the knights is revealed, as is Podrick's backstory. We also get several lessons in power dynamics, which we've been getting lots of in general, but they come in many forms. And the theme of ghosts comes up right at the start. The stone wall was old and crumbling, but the sight of it across the field made the hairs on Brienne's neck stand up. 
Raising of hairs on the back of your neck is a classic spooky sensation type description. I love that choice given this theme. The place was filled with corpses when she passed through it last time, and it was sacked three times during the War of Five Kings. It's appropriate in a chapter so focused on Brienne confronting the ghosts of the past that she begins with literally retracing the steps she took in A Storm of Swords with Jamie around Maidenpool this time. She tries to find the important spots on her and Jamie's journey, but importantly, she has trouble remembering just where certain events happened. It's a sign of how much she's changed, especially in her thinking about Jamie. They've both come such a long way, not just physically, but mentally from the past. Podrick's backstory is in many ways the opposite of Brienne's. Brienne had been born the daughter and later became the sole heiress of the Lord of Tarth, about as blue as Stormland's blood gets. Ah, pun intended. Podrick was born the son of a lesser branch of House Payne and a Chandler's daughter. By the way, that's Nina's pun. I can't take credit for that one. Good one, Nina. Brienne's father betrothed her three times, but also allowed her to train and never forced a betrothal on her after the third. And Podrick never knew his father at all, where Brienne had the benefit of castle arms training. Podrick, notably, hasn't been trained very well. He had someone training him that Tyrion gave him, but that fell off and wasn't replaced. And Brienne's picked it up now. They're also sort of a reversal of the Dunk and Egg dynamic, whereas Dunk was a poor man from the slums of King's Landing and Egg was the royal prince. Here, Brienne is the royally blooded noble and Podrick the boy barely one step up from commoner status, even though he technically has the name Payne. The backstory also shows why Podrick would want to find Tyrion again, as chaotic as his early life was. Remember, Podrick's only like, well, he's basically Sansa's age. He's like 13. Tyrion was actually a source of stability for him, even though... Uh, Tyrion wasn't bad to him. He wasn't great to him, but a master who didn't treat him like a servant or risk his neck, basically. He was doing pretty well with Tyrion, all all things considered, especially given what his outlook was before that. So training with Brienne is a double nod then. It's it's not just a mention of, it's not just a reframing of Dunk and Egg because Dunk was trained Egg quite a bit. But as we mentioned, I think in the last episode, Jamie is going to start learning from Podrick's cousin, Sir Illyn. He's learning to fight all over again. There's a memory of Brienne knocking Owen Inchfield on his ass when he goes to force a kiss on her. Dunk knocked over uh, Lucas Inchfield, who was some distant cousin, I guess, in uh, The Sworn Sword. Of course, right after knocking him over, he killed him. (laughs) Whereas Owen Inchfield, I I don't recall though, if he's one of the Knights of Summer that died or not. The scene with the farmers who were nearly robbed and raped by the gate guards is a prelude to the no chance, no choice scene later from Brienne when she uh, also puts herself between innocence and a large number of foes. Again, a group large enough that she'd have no hope of of winning, but a knight's got to be a knight. Even though she doesn't officially have that title, she again acts more like one than anyone. And yet the man called a true knight in this scene, Sir Heil Hunt, who shows up and ends the conflict. He's the one that gets thanks and acclaim now, he did the right thing, no doubt. Let's, you know, no argument there, but let's be clear that he took no risk whatsoever in this good deed. He, he had the authority to end it, and he did it, and there was no pushback, no cost to him whatsoever. So he did the right thing. Using your position of authority to prevent an evil deed is one of the best uses of authority that exists. But again, all he had to do was stand up, walk outside, and say, stop that, right? Whereas Brienne, to... Tr- to try to do this same task was willing to lose her life. So really, really be clear on that distinction here. And there's more groundwork as well for later Brienne chapters. This is very subtle, very powerful, and very well done. Here we go with a quote. 
Shouldn't we seize her, sir? The sergeant asked. For killing Renly? Why? Renly was a rebel. So were we all, rebels to a man. But now we're Tommen's loyal lads. Same thing is portrayed in the broken man speech, how men often don't even know what side they're fighting for because they're ordered to change lords or ordered to change sides or... And sometimes they're not told, they just follow. They're just like, oh, we're leaving? Where are we going? Well, no one told me, but I'm not going to be left here by myself. So it's noted that other than Hylehunt himself, none of the men actually guarding the gate are Lord Tarly's men. It becomes clear that their lack of discipline is a major clue. If they were Lord Tarly's men, they wouldn't be acting like this. Perhaps more so than anyone else we've seen this side of Stannis, Lord Randall runs a tight ship. That doesn't mean he's fair, though. Do not mistake brutality towards criminals as justice. Hello. But Lord Randall Tarly is the epitome of someone who does not understand root causes. He is as harsh to criminals as he is lax when it comes to getting at the root causes of those crimes. Why are these criminals keep coming? Why do they keep doing crime despite these harsh punishments? He doesn't ask. He just keeps dealing out the harsh punishments. To use a medical metaphor, this is a man who knows only how to treat symptoms, never the disease. This is presented rather stunningly in the case of the older sex worker accused of spreading the pox. Tarly ordered her private parts scrubbed with lye, which would quite possibly kill her. It it will definitely cause permanent damage, massive suffering. A small amount of lye is used in soap. By itself, it's corrosive. It causes chemical burns. So this is horrible. It it really is curing the disease by killing the patient in this case. It's super brutal. This does nothing to cure the pox, of course. It doesn't stop this kind of problem from happening. It just punishes this person that may not have... We don't even know she did it. We don't even know. It was an accusation. There's no examination of evidence. This is worse than guilty until proven innocent. This is guilty without proof. This is just, you're guilty. That's it. It's insidiously presented intentionally by George because Tarly is good at sensing lies. He's just not good at contextualizing them. When confronted with him directly, Lord Tarly goes straight into classic victim blaming. It's so gross. The knights who play their game on her, who might have raped her, according to him, they are not at fault, even though he says their game would have gotten out of hand. He flat out condemns their game, but blames her for the reason they're doing it. She's By being where she, quote unquote, doesn't belong, she encouraged them. Now, Sir Hyle says Tarly gelds rapists. So it's a double hypocrisy because this is a guy that is absolutely willing to be brutal to rapists. But he's still blaming Brienne for tempting these knights because I don't think he's going to do that to knights. It's a social thing. There's no contradiction here, even though it's obvious to us. He'll geld the rapist and blame the woman. What? (laughs) and not see the social distinction. He won't geld a knight, probably, but he will geld a a common man, and that won't be hypocritical in his mind, even though it's blatantly hypocritical to all of us. So really what we get with Randall Tarley is a sense that somehow, somehow, he's worse than advertised because we love Sam and we grasp on some level that Sam, or if not distinctly, like, Prominently, Sam was treated terribly by his father. We kind of understand his trauma, or at least that he has trauma. So we were already very predisposed to dislike Randall Tarley, yet somehow he's managed to go above and beyond that that notion that we already had, this this evidence that we already had. Or rather than above and beyond, you could say below and beyond. 
like Tywin, Randall has not redeeming qualities, but he has qualities that you can put in the pro column. Anyone harsh on rapists in a setting where most are lax about it is one. I mean, you got to give him credit for that. Like, you're not going to say, don't be harsh to rapists. Nah, that one, keep, keep on with that one, Randall. Men telling Brienne where she, that she belongs nowhere near a battlefield is nothing new. That She's used to that. But I wonder about how, what that's going to say, what that's going to mean when Daenerys comes to Westeros. Like, it seems like Randall Tarley is one of those types who really hates the idea of, of being led by a woman. He's one of those types that would have agreed with Kristen Cole that a woman should not inherit the Iron Throne. He probably will take whatever side Daenerys is not on. And that might lead us to that scene on TV that if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. I know some of you don't like me talking about TV, so I won't mention it specifically when I don't have to, because you know what I mean if you've seen it. Of course, by the time Danny shows up, who knows what side he's on? I would guess King Aegon VI, though. I mean, he's a friends in the reach guy, and he's no fool, as hateful as he is. He's obviously quite dangerous, too. Putting his idle soldiers to work at rebuilding Maidenpool, that might seem like another thing in the, in the pro column for him. And it is, sort of. I mean, he, he, he's rebuilding a town where people live and work, and that's important. That's, that is a good deed. But it's not, he's not doing it because it's a good deed. He's doing it because he's basically forced Lord Mutens to agree to marry his daughter to Dickon, his eldest son, which is a major power grab. He's basically saying my, he's basically trying to make his son Lord of Maidenpool because that's pretty much what happens when you have a female heir and you force, force a, a marriage to a man into there. You're, you're basically trying to get the man to take over. And this Mooton guy is portrayed as pretty weak-willed. He doesn't have any male sons. Male sons. He doesn't have any sons. And uh, so Randall Tarley smells the opportunity. Hey, Aziz. Yeah. Do you ever think, do you think there's ever been a King's Mooton? <laughs> yeah, there would have to be because the, the, there were kings at Maidenpool. That's a great thing. There we take. go. King's, king's Mooton. Mooton. <laughs> <laughs> All the King's Mooton. <laughs> so basically this is, his son won't be Lord of Maidenpool. I mean, he will be by marriage, but his grandchildren will inherit it directly. And then it'll be like Tarly Mooton branch of the family. Maidenpool's a decent spot. It's not one of the few, it's not, it's not a true city, but it is a port. So it's, it might be one of those things that if it were allowed to grow larger, it could become a city. But it might, might, might be one of those Duskendale situations where Duskendale wanted to grow larger and that was where the defiance of Duskendale started. They wanted to get bigger and maybe become more of a proper city. But Eric was like, no. <laughs> and they're like, well, come talk to us about it. And they're like, gotcha. There's another little anecdote here. Mooton children and the Mootons. Uh, there's a connection to the Targaryens because Rhaegar's, one of Rhaegar's best friends and his top squire, he had a few, was Sir Miles Mooton. I mean, of course, he eventually became a knight, as you can see by his title. Mooton was a prominent supporter and died at the Trident, killed by Robert, Robert Baratheon himself. I'm sorry, not at the Trident, but at the Battle of the Bells, excuse me. And this is the same battle where Dennis Aaron died, the same battle that John Connington is haunted by, the one he thinks he maybe should have just burned the whole city down. Another example of burning the town, talking about rebuilding. He was called bold as brass, Miles Mooton. Maybe that's a positive memory for Randall Tarley. Tarly was, of course, a, a staunch loyalist to the Targaryens during the rebellion as well. 
and is noted as the only person to have defeated Robert, even though Mace Tyrell took credit for that, which is, by the way, one of many reasons to suspect that Tarly will jump ship for young Griff because he's being mistreated by Mace Tyrell. All of this is a smaller scale version of what's happened with Sansa. And by that, I mean Eleanor Mooton. Her claim has attracted those who sense the implied opportunity. Marry her, you basically control her claim. She's the eldest, she's the heir to Maidenpool, effectively. And well, the implied opportunity is what Randall Tarley is jumping on. It's also fitting uh, for Sansa, given this is one of her favorite stories from her childhood is, is Florian the Fool and John Keel, which that is named after Maidenpool. The maiden in the name Maidenpool is John Keel. The pool is where Florian the Fool first discovered her. Another line that reminds us of the ghosts here, uh, Padrick, when he you know, says, what are you looking for? Ghosts. A wall I rode by once. It does not matter. And we get this back and forth. Padrick always says, my lady, sir. That's like his mantra. <laughs> Brienne's is, I'm looking for a maid, a three and 10. <laughs> Padrick says, my lady, sir. <laughs> Brienne thinks a little more on past betrothals as she does fairly often and about how different she could have been. What a loss for the world if that life had come true, Joe Buckley writes, huh? It links pretty well to Ariane's detailing on her own many failed betrothals though, right? It's, I, I like to tweet little trivia parallel lives, I call them, and uh, I share them in, sometimes in other places too, but mostly it's a Twitter thing. I did a Brienne Ariane one because of, because of this line, because of their both having failed betrothals when they were young and being extreme opposite ends of the conventional beauty standards, which George loves to play with. And hat tip to Chloe Ketchum, who made this great tweet, said, if you think Brienne is ugly, you're ugly. <laughs> and it's, it, it's a great point because underneath the, the statement is saying, well, that's what George is doing here. George is un, unpacking the fact that Beauty is an entirely social construct. What Brienne is being judged for isn't her looks. I mean, she is being judged for her looks, but it's more about her failing, quote unquote, failing to abide by gender norms. And which is that she's supposed to be small and have big hips and have children. That is the ideal woman, according to many Westerosi nobles, the ones who are in power, especially. So, yeah. Everything people say about Brienne, all these judgments are basically rooted in believing what other people say about beauty standards. And it's funny because the show almost undermined this, but they didn't really speak to it directly. But by having Tormund express an interest in Brienne's qualities that other men in Westeros don't express an interest in, it kind of proves that point. It's like, shouldn't men in a medieval society who value strength Shouldn't this be a good quality that she's large? I mean, shouldn't that be like, won't strong you, you children have come good from kids. that? Yeah, you're right. Like, it's a genetic quality that people should be like, okay, maybe you don't find her pretty, but like those your, muscles. Your sons are going to be <laughs> strong. Yeah. Yet no one seems to address that in world. And George is doing that on purpose. And if you think George hasn't thought about this a lot, let me remind you that George wrote for the TV show Beauty and the Beast, which absolutely 100% delved into these themes constantly. So George is, a, this is a big part of George's writing history and dealing with this with this thread. This honestly wasn't the best place to bring this up because, because Brienne's looks aren't necessarily as referred to as much in this chapter as they are in others. But it, it, it also is the chapter where she thinks of the 
the Rose gift and all the different men trying to pretend to like her, which she was never really fooled by. She didn't know what they were doing, but she knew they weren't suddenly into her. Great line from uh, Randall Tarley who says, lie to me and I will hang you. Well, Brienne hanging because they think she lied. That is exactly what's going to happen. Stoneheart is not going to be able to believe the, the truth. <laughs> Brienne thinks about how she almost goes overseas. And that is another, oh, almost nod to the five-year gap. The pretty Maris theory that Joe Buckley mentions here, which is a really good theory, I think, that had she gone overseas, she may have ended up looking and uh, like Pretty Maris, who was really scarred and, and beaten horribly. So, but the quote is, Brienne did not want to chase the girl across the narrow sea, where even the language would be strange to her. So, yeah, good. They didn't, she didn't go. More and more evidence, only a little bit here, but important, still happening. You still see people passing by, Brienne and Pod, to heading south, uh, dressed like sparrows, whatever that means. There's, they don't exactly have like an outfit, but you know, the commonest. I'm picturing they have like feathered wings attached <laughs> to their side. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Abs drawn on, shirtless. <laughs> well, you've gotten me really good a few times today. <laughs> so Heil Hunt has been with the Tarleys for longer than we might think. Sam will remember in his next chapter that when he was small, his lord father had tried to teach him how to swim by throwing him into the pond beneath Horn Hill. The water had gotten in his nose and in his mouth and in his lungs, and he coughed and wheezed for hours after Sir Hyle pulled him out. So her guess is that, Nina's guess rather, is that the hunts are bannermen of the Tarleys, both the sigil, a dead deer slung on a pole, and the family name suggests hunting, which, I mean, the striding huntsmen of House Tarley, Hyle's cousin Alan is also in service to Randall. So also, Heil Hunt's, Hunt's judgment of Brienne's fighting skills way off. He says, on a good day, she might have been able to take Eamon Kai, and there's no way she could beat Robar. But yeah, like we saw her hold them both off, and Jamie Lannister, and yeah, I don't need to sell this to you all. You know that he's well short on, on her his estimation, but that's just part of the whole pastiche of looking down on her, is that they can't even assume, he can't even properly estimate her skills as a warrior, even though she won that tournament, even though she beat the crap out of all those other nights of summer, which he ha had to be aware of because he was there. Nina makes the point that Randall might be one of the most straightforwardly unlikable characters in the series. There's, there's characters that maybe do worse, that are more evil, but just in, in terms of just, it's so obvious. <laughs> there's no subtlety to his, <laughs> his wrongness. There's subtlety in, in how his wrongness affects the world and, and props up bad cultural aspects. But in terms of just meeting him and being like, oh, this guy sucks, it's, it's hard to be more straightforward. And of course, uh, the Knights of Summer bit is rounded up here because Sir Heil, during his non-apology, mentions that what happened to most of the men that were in on the, the, the bet, the wager to get Brienne, most of them awful things have happened to them. She's not like, yeah, that doesn't make me feel better. <laughs> it's like, they're still awful. I, like what? They didn't apologize to me. It doesn't change anything. So it's just, yeah, it's just part of him not understanding at all what the problem is. Nimble Dick, of course, we get right at the end of the chapter. That's where this is all leading to. We don't actually get a lot of, of Nimble Dick, but uh, we'll get more of him later. 
Uh, he's very likely a deserter. As we see, he's got a, a, a prominently on his clothing, there's a badge torn off. There had been some sort of house badge there and it's been torn off. So we don't know who he was fighting with. And we also see that this is not a place where people hang out to be, to be seen. This is a, an under-the-radar bar type place. We even see Shagwell hanging out there um, as part of this anecdote, as part of these stories. Nimble Dick tells an ancient anecdote about Sir Clarence Crabb and the Whispers. It's a tall tale, and Sir Clarence Crabb is himself tall. <laughs> Yet it fits in super well with these current topics surrounding the dead and ghosts and putting heads back on people and resurrecting them. <laughs> yeah, we got vibes of Robert Strong. We got vibes of the House of Black and White. And we got vibes of, of the ghost. It's really neat and, and strange because the story is that Clarence Crabb would cut these heads off and these heads would, he would collect them and they would still talk and tell things and, and give their wisdom. It actually reminds me of Futurama. <laughs> Disembodied heads. That's funny though. This is a bit creepy, <laughs> but I don't think he has Nixon back there. Also, I will say we know for a fact that George R. R. Martin likes Futurama. True that. We do know that. One time I was sitting, we were sitting with, with George R. R. Martin in, in Belfast and he noticed my shirt and was like, what is on your shirt there? I was wearing a Zoidberg shirt that said, we do not pay. Yes, <laughs> yes. Because Zoidberg, because as we know, the sandwich heavy portfolio pays off for the hungry investor. <laughs> At least one person, several people noticed the sergeant at the gate, the awful sergeant who tries to steal the eggs and rape the farmer's wife is of House Serret, who is, uh, he's not of House Serret, rather, he serves House Serret. And we know that House Serret's was mentioned earlier in this episode because the knight, aka Harris Harlaw, the ironborn knight with the Valyrian steel blade, his mother was also House Serret. Great take, uh, or rather, a uh, piece of trivia from Lefessa on Flick, who points out that the stinking goose is next to a building called a knacker. I did not know what a knacker is. I just kind of let that slide, but she looked either knew or looked it up. And oh my God, the stinking goose, that's an understatement. The stinking goose has got to be the, the super awful, incredibly smelly stinking goose. Because a, a knacker is a processor of animal corpses for things like glue, for non-eating, for things that you would not eat, like for animal glue and other things that they use carcasses for. And that's right next door to this bar. <laughs> oh, stinky, stinky goose indeed. Laura Brandos points out Brienne bumping her head as she comes in, which is uh, a lot of tall people will are going to feel sympathy for that one. I have another personal anecdote on that front. And it's not because I'm tall. I'm not. I'm almost exactly average height. So I don't, I don't have these stories from my own perspective. But one time I was sitting with some friends at a bar, not the Stinking Goose, much nicer smelling place. And it, just by coincidence, there were two really tall dudes in the group that didn't know each other. One of them was like 6'6", six, six, the other was like 6'8". So I mean, real tall. And they just started swapping tall guy stories like, hey man, how many concussions have you had? Hey, yeah, like four. I've had two. And have you ever had this happen? When one of them just shows a, taking a drink of his beer, leaning his head back. So the, the beer bottle goes a little higher and it gets hit by the ceiling fan. Like, whoa. Oh God, <laughs> yeah. My brother is six foot eight and I grew up in Hawaii where the houses, a lot of them are very short. The ceilings are. 
And so he would often have to like crouch really low in the shower yeah. to try to take one, hit his head all the time. And tall yeah. people on airplanes are really Oof. suffering there. Yeah. Yep. But, but you know, and they luck out at concerts. So basically I hate really tall people because <laughs> of them at concerts. Boo. <laughs> yeah, they have some advantages, but they also have things like Concussions, uh, back problems, and knee problems. Nina said swapping tall tails. Oh, I can't believe we missed that. Holy crap. We literally even said tall tale or about Clarence Crab like 10 minutes ago. Thank you, Nina, for catching that one because Nina's got our back. <laughs> couldn't, she couldn't let that one slide. It almost did. All right, we're going to finish today with a, a take from Archmaester Rennie on Flick, which I think is really well said. I, I maybe should have just used this take earlier because we've been off and on on this topic. What I think George R. R. Martin is mostly doing with Randall is using him as the character who embodies and enforces accepted Westerosi gender roles. It's important that he tries to enforce the norms of brute masculinity on Sam, who'd prefer to be a scholar, and he tries to enforce the gender norms of helpless femininity on Brienne, and that those gender roles come with a sexual code as well that says that men are always sexual aggressors and that if a noble-born woman is assaulted by those men who are supposed to be sexually aggressive, but take it out only on their wives and peasants, then it's her fault because she failed to be chaste. It's George illustrating how those straitjacket gender roles and appalling ideals of sexual norms are actually harmful to both male-bodied and female-bodied people. Really, really well said. So maybe I should have said that sooner, but maybe I'm saving the best for last. Great take, Archmaester Rennie. With that, we are done for today. Last week, we covered 183 minutes and 35 seconds. This week, 164 minutes and 47 seconds. So far, we've covered 644 minutes out of 2,030 minutes. We are 31.7% of the way through the book. And notably, yeah, the video, we're only at about uh, two hours, 16 minutes. Yeah, the, shorter. the Asha chapter was, was almost an hour, but the others we got through a lot faster. They're really good chapters. The Cersei chapter, I thought, would take longer. It's just so much happens in it, but a lot of it is just notations, uh, setting up things that we'll discuss in more detail later. I always struggle with the one-off chapters because we don't have, a, we don't get to come back to them. <laughs> We're just like, well, if I miss something in Cersei, well, there's the next Cersei chapter. But with <laughs> Ari Sokard, it's like, well, well, we can pick it up in Ariane. That's not a big deal. And with Asha, well, we'll have a Victorian chapter not too long from now, but there's only one more Ironborn chapter in this whole book. And uh, then we get a few in dance. So anyway, you can always check, yeah, like Shea mentioned the video, you can always check the podcast version and compare the two to see how much we edited out. Next week, we've got four more chapters. Samuel to the Blackbird to Bravos, aka the one with the baby swap reveal. Jamie to the one where Jamie argues with everyone, <laughs> aka the gang sends Tywin home. Cersei for Dwarf Head, Giant Skull, aka the Queen's New Council. And finally, the Iron Captain. The gang prepares to moot. AKA the one where, oh, AKA the one with, when men see my sails, they pray. Oh yeah, Euron's famous quote is coming next week, along with more Euron action. We actually meet Euron on page for the first time, so that's cool. We'll have plenty to say about that, but also Cersei's chapter with uh, her new council. That's got a lot. We got a lot to say about that. More Aries vibes there. Probably not quite as many as this this chapter, but the Aries vibes continue. We mentioned or referred to a lot of our own episodes indirectly or directly 
All this stuff about Barris and Selmy and Aries Oakhart and turning cloaks is and Kristen Cole is a, a good time to shout out our episode of White Cloak Turned is Still White and our companion scripted version episode, uh, Serwin of the Mirror Shield. Of course, our Dance of the Dragons episodes with Radio Westeros are pretty relevant to the early parts of the dance, which we've covered, um, including we covered the incident of Blood and Cheese, which was referred to here. I, I, got, I can't believe I mistook Viserys 1 for Viserys 2, but it happens. <laughs> Even I can make that mistake. Blackfire Rebellions. Of course, we mentioned those here. Of course, the chapters do too. That is the, the historical period we have spent the most time on throughout the history of History of Westeros. Euron Greyjoy episode is out there that we've done. A Forsaken episode is out there that we've done. That's big on where Euron's going and where he might be going. And we have episodes on both of the Arianne spoiler chapters from The Winds of Winter. Those are both really cool and contain some very uh, interesting world building as well as setting up a lot of the Young Griff Golden Company plot lines. So I encourage you to check those out as well. Thank you, everyone who came today. We very much appreciate you coming live and participating in the live portion of this recording and this episode. Thank you, of course, to Ashea for being the best, for managing so much at once. Thanks for the contributions from the rest of y'all, like Joe Buckley and Nina Friel and our History of Westeros mods who post the chapters every week. Thanks to our contributors from Flick and also Slack and Discord. We are constantly getting great takes from you guys. Uh, The the only downside to that is it's harder and harder for me to include all these great takes from y'all because there's more and more of them. More and more people are joining our groups and participating, which is overall a great thing, but it does have that one small negative to it. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld, AKA Claradox. Check out his maps at his site, claradox.de. You see them behind us. Shea mentioned the creation of the intro, the video intro that we used that was done by him. Using uh, Dutch moguls, uh, Saivos pieces on Thingiverse so you could get it printed yourself. And a little teaser for you guys. Next week, there might be something different uh, visually here. That's right. We've got some new Michael Klarfeld surprises. Thanks also to Jesse Koval and Joey Townsend for our regular music and to Kevin McLeod for our Valerie Redis music. Thanks to our Benjineer for making our audio tracks sound much better than they would have otherwise. Thank you extremely much to our patrons for keeping the show running, keeping all of our bills paid and enabling us to focus on Westeros full time. Check out Here Be Dragons as always. That's running after our show ends, although it's still another 30 some minutes. Yeah, before normally that it's like, go there in five minutes. Yeah, today you got a little more time to kill. Ashay and I are going to go watch some marble racing. Yes, Yellis Marble Runs um, has the 2020 Marble League starts today. And Team Galactic, my team is hosting at the Andromedome. If you also like marble runs, please tell us so we can all talk about the marbles. Yes, we love marbles. We've been buying our own marbles. I'm a Balls of Chaos man myself. Yeah, we're building a marble uh, race course ourselves um, out in our yard and all that. So anyways, um, now you guys know our our new hobby. Yes, we are obsessed. (laughs) I wish there were some cool Westerosi marbles. I want to combine these two loves, but (laughs) maybe one day, one day. If any of you spy any Game of Thrones marbles out there, 
you, you be sure to let us know. <laughs> and until next time, we are excited for more as we continue our journey. We'll see you then next Sunday with more Valar Rereads.